And welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And oh boy, do we have a fun one today. I always have a little special gleam in my eye when we get to do one of these. We get to talk about a TV movie today. And I'm very excited about those because the whole point of Staff Picks is introducing people to movies they might, might not have seen and might not be floating around on Netflix that are really easy to find. And so today I'm going to delight you with a 1986 TV movie, The Deliberate Stranger, which in my opinion is the best movie ever made about Ted Bundy. Uh, we, we may have a little debate on that in a second with my guest, but I just want to tell you we're talking about a Ted Bundy story. It was a two-part miniseries back in 1986. I am fascinated by this movie. I have always liked it. And we're going to delve into my background with true crime and Ted Bundy along the way, which hopefully doesn't horrify you too much. Okay, and my guest for this podcast, she is a first-time visitor to Staff Picks. Uh, she runs a very popular Ted Bundy uh, website. Actually, I'm not sure that's the right way to describe it. I'll let her describe it. But she's one of the few people, I will tell you right now, that knows more about Ted Bundy and the Ted Bundy case than me. So this may not be a psychologically appropriate meeting. This is like the gatekeeper meeting the key master. So I feel a little bad about that. So yeah, she's laughing already. I'll let her, I'll let her describe herself. Welcome to the show, Tiffany Jean. Hi, Mario. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I think it's very appropriate because we can, you know, compare notes on what everything we know about Ted Bunny. Yes, we can nerd out. I'm, I'm warning my audience already. We will be nerding out on Ted Bundy, which is a very odd thing to nerd out about, unless you know the two of us. Would you agree with that, Tiffany? I agree with that, yes. But it's going to be fun. So introduce yourself to the people. Tell, uh, tell my listeners kind of who you are and why you were chosen for this movie specifically. Yeah, so I'm an archivist, professional archivist, and legal librarian, and researcher. And um, one day in 2019, I was watching a documentary on Netflix, and it was about Ted Bundy. And I never really knew much about him before. Like, I'd heard the name. I kind of knew he was a serial killer. I didn't know anything else. And I thought, this, and, you know, I watched it. And I'm like, this is the craziest story I've ever heard. Why don't I know more about this story? This is bizarre. And I, you know, kind of got sucked in and went down a rabbit hole and one rabbit hole led to another rabbit hole. And uh, as a researcher and an archivist, I thought to myself, you know, I really need to get the primary sources. I need to get the records from this case. And I know how to do that, you know, with my background. And I realized that a lot of this stuff hadn't been seen in 50 years. Um, and some of it hadn't been seen at all. And so I started collecting it and I became I guess, an archivist of the case. Um, and now I have about a terabyte of Ted Bundy data. <laughs> <laughs> and I run a blog about it. Yeah, let me butt in here. So I have dedicated my whole life to studying the Ted Bundy story and true crime. And for a lot of people don't know this. I grew up in Seattle. I grew up right on Lake Sammamish. So I am, it was dead central right in the area where it happened. So I have dedicated my life to knowing about Ted Bundy, to following the story. 
And then Tiffany here, Buzz Lightyear, shows up. And in three years, she knows more about Ted and Bundy than I have ever known. And so I now go to her when I need the facts. And so it's like she's the new kid on the block here, but she knows way more than I do. And I know you because because you've gone and you've actually got these primary sources, like you said. Right. Exactly. I read most of the books that were out there and um, I just, I, you know, I prefer to get it from the horse's mouth just because of, you know, what I do professionally. And, and I was able to uh, find out a lot more that way, I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's that's. I don't have that that instinct or the that tenacity or the background that you do. But yeah, so to to fill people in on this a little bit, I was a psychology major back in college. I'm from Seattle. I uh, wanted to go into forensic psychology or abnormal psychology coming out of college in the 90s. I wrote my senior thesis on serial killers with a special <laughs> focus on Ted Bundy. Oh. I didn't know that. Yeah, so you didn't. We, Tiffany and I, have, we have never met. This is our first time we've ever actually talked. Uh-huh. You should send me that for my collection. Oh, I'll see if I can find it. This is like 30 years old. <laughs> but I, I came out of college, and I wanted to be a, a, a police profiler like John Douglas. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do that, but there, wasn't, there weren't really any programs in the 90s, the mid-90s, to do that. So I was a little ahead of my time. So that's my thing. So I have a whole history of reading every Ted Bundy book. Uh, watching all the movies in Seattle, I used to drive people around on the Ted Bundy reality tour. I'd take them to the famous locations. Mm-hmm. To sum it up for people, I've been studying this guy for like 30 years. She's been studying for like four, and she's way beyond me. So I will turn to you a lot as we go through this movie to ask about accuracy. Yeah, I, I'm glad to be of service. Okay, first off, before we delve into this movie, we're going to walk people through it, which I know most of my audience has not seen this movie, so we'll kind of be painting a picture. Is this the best Ted Bundy movie out there? Or is it at least in the conversation? Are you aware of those, the other ones? Yeah, you know, I haven't actually seen all of them, uh, especially the ones that were largely panned. I've seen the best Ted Bundy movie to me is the one that was released the most recently. It's called No Man of God. Did you see that one? I have not, but I was just reading some reviews that people like it. It's great. It's really good. Uh, highly recommend that one. It, it takes a different angle. It's from the viewpoint of Bill Hagmeyer, who is the FBI agent who is tasked with trying to figure out his Ted Bundy's mind. Um, and it all takes place within a few days of his execution. Um, I thought it was it was great, but Deliberate Stranger is a good one too. It's um, very factual. Like they didn't take a whole lot of um, artistic license with it, which I thought was interesting. I, I enjoyed it, except for the soundtrack. <laughs> okay, yeah. For people who don't know, this was this movie came out in 1986. This was the first Ted Bundy movie. It was a two-part miniseries. And it's one of those movies that growing up in Seattle, like I did, it was on TV all the time. I mean, it was always to be run on this one channel, Channel 11. So like anybody with my background knows this movie kind of inside and out. It was just always on all the time. Yeah, I hadn't seen it until you sent it to me. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, this movie has a history, but there's a couple other things that are interesting about this one is that this one was made before he was executed. And this is the one that was made before he did any of his confessions. Right. So, yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this movie, which maybe stands out to you, is that even though this movie is very accurate, there's certain things they had had to kind of guess how they happened, and they're not quite accurate. Yeah, did you notice that? Yeah, 
I did. Uh huh. Uh, like the Georgia, like the very opening scene, the Georgia and Hawkins, where they kind of assumed that she was abducted against her will and, you know, grabbed, but that's not what happened at all. Yeah, see, Tiffany knows all the facts of exactly how these murders happened, but in 86, I do remember this very distinctly that no one knew anything about that Georgia Ann Hawkins murder. That was the big unknown. And it wasn't until Ann Rule kind of came out with uh, her book and added an extra forward at the end or whatever with the, some of the details that it came out how he killed Georgia Ann Hawkins. So that was a couple years after this movie came out. That's the, that's, that's the only flaw I see in this movie. It's not quite 100% accurate. That's true. And also, the I think you were telling me earlier, the Laura Amy scene. Um, we can talk about that later if you want. Yeah, we will. We'll go right through this movie. We'll go through the whole thing. Okay, so let's see. Uh, anything when you were watching? So you'd never seen this movie until I sent it to you. You'd heard about it. What was your first instinct when you saw it? My first instinct um, that it was made in 1986 and therefore couldn't be completely accurate mm -hmm. because he hadn't started confessing yet. Um, but, uh, you know, besides that, I was impressed by the accuracy. It uses a lot of real quotes. Um, from the case, things that he actually said. Um, no, none of the characters are embellished too much. Um, the other thing that struck me is, is kind of weird is that they use pseudonyms for all of the victims except for Denise Maslin, who was one of the Lake Sammamish victims. And I, I couldn't figure out why. Um, I did some research into it. I read some, some articles that came out in 86 about it, and I couldn't, couldn't find the answer to that question. <laughs> Maybe they just wanted to avoid any legal problems. I've I've wondered that too. For people who don't know, yeah, every victim in this movie they use a fictional pseudonym. So it's going to be interesting when Tiffany and I go through this movie and compare it to real life. If we're going to use the pseudonyms or the real names. <laughs> oh, I don't know the pseudonyms. I'd have to use the real names. Excellent, because that was my plan as well. I didn't even write down these stupid fake names. Okay. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, so let's let's sum this up for people. So, yeah, Ted Bundy, very famous serial killer. One could argue really the first modern serial killer. Like, I know you know Ted Bundy. Do you know other serial killers as well as his story? Not as well. I, you know, I, I know the broad strokes of many, but not like this, no. I think, now I may be talking out of my butt here, but this is something I remember writing in my senior thesis back in the 90s that there wasn't really a concept of a serial killer back in 1974 when Ted Bundy was starting his reign because it was widely believed that people murdered people they knew that you didn't really murder strangers unless it was like a robbery or something right and so like there was like no concept that someone would do this that would just go around to different jurisdictions and murder strangers who they had no relation to just because they were kind of driven like that the police didn't believe that was possible so ted bundy was kind of a, a i hate to say forefather but he was kind of the first of his kind i would say a serial killer pioneer yeah so but would you would you agree with that with what you know that he was kind of they, they, the the police were not really ready to capture capture somebody like this yet that's very true. They were really looking for any connection that he could have had to any of the victims. And they were kind of grasping at straws there because he didn't have any. He was, he was picking women at, not at random, but picking women that he found alluring for whatever reason. Um, but he always made sure that they couldn't be tied back to him. 
which is why it's always funny when some women are like, oh, you know, I went on a date with him. I don't know why I survived. It's like, well, because he knew you <laughs> and you knew him. He wasn't going to kill you. Yeah, it's 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 so fascinating watching this movie because this movie takes me back to a place back in the 70s and 80s. And I was born in 1974. So clearly I wasn't I have no knowledge of this Ted Bundy murder spree, but I do have a lot of older aunts and uncles, relatives, my mom, classmates from my school that were older than me that do remember this. And that's one thing I think a lot of people kind of forget that this Ted Bundy story isn't just some fictional story about a serial killer. Like this is was a real thing that happened to real people. And it's still to this day up in Seattle, there's still relatives of the victims still alive. Like it's and I think that's one thing that gets a lost in a lot of tellings of the story. And that's why I appreciate your blog, because yours is dedicated to the victims, correct? Yeah, it is. I try to tell their stories. And I don't feel like that's been, I don't feel like that's been done enough. Yeah, I 100% agree. Because that's, that's kind of my problem with a lot of Ted Bundy movies that they all sensationalize, want to talk about him, these horrible things he did to his victims. But this movie in particular, and I know your blog in particular, are more dedicated to the stories of the families and the victims. So I just want to say I really appreciate the kind of stuff you do. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. Even though people are routinely ripping off your research and using it on their own web pages. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Indeed. I, you know, it's a form of flattery, right? Yeah. Tiffany has a problem that she pulls out all this amazing research and people just steal it and put it on their website. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One more thing before we go through this movie. I got to talk about Mark Harmon, the actor who plays Ted Bundy. Now, are you familiar with Mark Harmon in other roles? Not really. Um, I was born in the end of 83, so I'm a bit younger. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really remember the 80s that well. And it seems like he had his heyday in the 80s, right? Okay, I'll give you a little backstory. This is kind of funny. That I can add to your knowledge of Ted Bundy here. So Mark Harmon was a college quarterback. He played quarterback for UCLA, very famous athlete back in his day in the 70s. Then he turned to acting in the early 80s. And he had some bit roles, some, you know, minor hits in the 80s. And then in 1986, he was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. I did know that. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it became a big deal that he was like, oh, the heartthrob, the big heartthrob in Hollywood. And then immediately after that, he played Ted Bundy. <laughs> and one of the funny stories, I'm sure you know this story, but I want to repeat this for my listeners that won't know that after this movie aired, so many women started becoming, falling in love with Ted Bundy. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, he's innocent. I just want to support him. And, and they would write to like Ann Rule, this true crime writer who knew Ted Bundy. And they would say, I love Ted Bundy. Where can I reach him? And Ann Rule had to eventually tell these people, you're not in love with Ted Bundy. You're in love with Mark Harmon. Shut up. <laughs> I had heard that story, but, you know, to be fair, he had his share of groupies even before Mark Harmon came around. Yeah. <laughs> Hardly the first serial killer to have groupies. Was not the first, was not the last. Yep, that's true. But it was an interesting choice picking Mark Harmon to play him. Did you read there was controversy about this movie, about the casting? Yeah, I did. Because of the, the fact that he was named the sexiest man alive and he was such a heartthrob. And he was playing a serial killer who murdered women. Um, I, I think that was controversial back then, too. Um, 
And he talked about, I read an interview with Mark Harmon that was very interesting to me. He talked about how to get into the character, he spoke to Carol DeRanche, the woman who escaped, and he spoke to Al Carlisle, his psychiatrist at the Utah State Prison, and he started stalking women <laughs> lightly. <laughs> what he would do is, he, he talked about this. He said, you know, to get into the character, I decided to push boundaries, and I would go to a public place, and I would pick out an attractive woman, and I would start to follow her and stare at her, just to see how it felt to be a hunter. I was like, oh, damn. Wow. <laughs> really getting into the character, dude. And then he talked about how it, it was damaging to him psychologically. <laughs> See, when I lightly stalk people, I get in trouble. That's the problem. <laughs> well, you're not Mark Harmon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Mark Harmon, one of those guys forever in my mind associated with Ted Bundy. In fact, I cannot see Mark Harmon in any other movie without thinking, oh, my God, it's Ted Bundy. Like, he's so good in this role that I've never been able to see him as anybody else. Yeah, he did a great job. I was impressed with his acting, actually. I think he's, he nailed it for the most part. All right. And before we go, uh, before we go into the movie, one more thing I want to talk about. So this movie is based on a book. There are many books that have been written about Ted Bundy. The most famous is probably the one by Anne Rule called The Stranger Beside Me. And I know, Tiffany, I'm going to put some words in your mouth. You fucking hate Anne Rule. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's that strong of a of a hatred, but um, she's not my favorite writer. I'll say that. Now, okay, well, we'll paraphrase this a little bit because you think she inserts herself into the Ted Bundy story more than she really deserved. Oh, absolutely, and she also just made things up. Oh, wow! A lot of things in that book are not factual, and Ted actually read it and he made a list of all the things that were not factual about it. And gave it to me, me, Stephen Michaud, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, you know, if you if you read the primary source documents and compare it to the book, you'll realize like she didn't really know a lot of what she was talking about, and so she would make things up to make a better story. Wow, yeah, that's a uh, this hard hitting news here from Tiffany because that that is widely considered the best Ted Bundy book. <laughs> but <laughs> my point was that this is actually based on a different book, The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson. Yes, and it's, I think it's far superior to Stranger Beside Me. It's very factual. It was written by, you know, he was a journalist for the Seattle Times, so it's written from a more journalistic perspective and very factual, as opposed to Anne Rule, which was not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's out of print, uh, but you can find used copies. Uh, highly recommend it. Okay, well, that's good because this movie is out of print, too. So if they're going to find the movie, might as well find the book, too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've read all the Ted Bundy books, and that's the one I don't remember very much. I know most of them. I, I don't remember anything specific about that one that's different than any other one. I just think it's, um, it's just the most fact-based. It's the most accurate. Uh, he really did his homework in researching this case. Um, and he also knew Ted Bundy from before he was, you know, on trial and everything. He knew him in the political circles. And then I think it was 72, he even wrote an article in the Times supporting him by name because he, Bundy had gotten in trouble for spying on um, the Rosalini campaign when he was working for Governor Evans in Washington. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Larson actually wrote a whole article in the Times supporting him. So they, they knew each other. And Larson 
liked him a lot. And that's pretty evident in the movie, too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not only does he know Bundy, he practically wants to make love to Bundy in this movie. He loves him so much. <laughs> so it's a message, you know, it's a movie about his disillusionment, too, I think. Okay, so let's get into this for people. Again, we're talking about a TV movie, but in my opinion, the best or at least one of the best movies about Ted Bundy. It's really a shame this movie is kind of hard to find these days because if you want a factual representation of what the whole Ted Bundy story was like from an outsider's perspective, this one does a really good job. And and I will say towards the end, like it's it's a TV movie, so it's not especially violent. There's not a lot of blood, but there's a scene at the end when we get to Chi Omega that at the time was considered very brutal for a TV movie. I know that was kind of controversial. Mm-hmm. And that's the only murder they really depict. Yeah, probably because that's the only one he'd been convicted of. That's my guess. Yep, I think you're right. I think that's right. I read that they I read that they filmed a Kimberly Leach scene. There was a scene of him actually leading her to the van, uh, and they ultimately cut that because um, legal issues. You know, it was under appeal, I suppose. Yeah, I do notice in this movie, they really yada yada over the Florida stuff. I did too. Yeah, this movie's three hours long, and the Florida stuff is like 10 minutes at the very end, which is the stuff that most people remember. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I read why they did that is just for legal reasons. Um, they didn't want to get into trouble and mess up his appeals or get involved in that at all. In fact, um, when they were pitching it, Larson was pitching it to ABC first, and ABC didn't want anything to do with it because they didn't want to get involved in, in the legal aspect of it. They thought it would be too much and open themselves up to being sued or, or whatever, interfering with the legal process. But NBC jumped on board, and they aired it. Excellent, yeah. <laughs> Good job, NBC. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we go. The Deliberate Stranger, 1986, starring Mark Harmon in his star-making role. And it opens. What's interesting, of course, Ted Bundy. Okay, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to assume you guys know more about the Ted Bundy story than you do. Because obviously, Tiffy and, I, Tiffy and I can reel off pretty much any name or date ever. But most people believe it started in February 1974. Is that correct? Well, it actually admitted to a murder in May of 1973. Uh, he said that was his first murder. But, um, you know, it really kicked off. Um, Karen Sparks was attacked, um, but she survived. And that was in January of 74. But his first murder was Linda Healy, and that was in February, like February 1st, I think, 1974. And that's when he really started his murder spree. Okay, yes. Yeah, so what my, my point that I'm getting at in the movie is that Ted Bundy had been killing a while before this movie starts. This movie starts with George Ann Hawkins, who I believe is his sixth victim. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're just going to guess. It's sixth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, with Bundy, there's a lot of murders that are attributed to him that we don't entirely know. Like, including that one that you talked about in 73. Which one is that off the top of your head? I don't remember which one you're talking about. Nobody does. Uh, they were never able to connect that with a name or an in, or a missing person. But he said it was a hitchhiker. But we don't know who. So yeah, there's still stuff that's unknown about Ted Bundy. This movie starts with the George Ann Hawkins murder, which I would argue if you grew up in Seattle, that was the one that people tended to remember. 
that was the most famous one. The, some would argue the Lake Sammamish ones are, but we opened with George Ann Hawkins and kind of Tiffany kind of explain the scene to people, how it's shown in the movie, how we're introduced to Ted Bundy. It begins with a woman walking towards her dorm at a sorority house and it's nighttime and she's walking down this alley and suddenly you hear some steps starting to follow her and she walks a little faster and the steps increase and then it kind of goes black and you realize you hear her like scream and you realize that he just caught her and that's that's the first time we I don't remember do we actually see his face no you just see his feet you just see his, his feet yeah yeah just his feet but it's implied that he was following her and grabbed her yeah, so the movie starts with this really chilling scene of a girl getting followed and stalked coming out of a sorority house, which is 100% not, not accurate to how it happened in real life. Now, Tiffany, why don't you explain how it did happen in real life and why they had to guess at this? So they didn't know exactly how she disappeared. It was baffling to them because she disappeared within about 200 feet from her sorority house, and they couldn't figure out why no one heard anything. She, no one heard a sound and she just vanished into thin air and they couldn't figure it out until Bundy confessed. And that's one of the cases he gave to the Washington uh, investigator um, as a evidence of his truthfulness when he was trying to get extra time before his execution. He was like, I'll, I'll give you some stories. I'll give you some confessions if you give me a little more time. And George Ann Hawkins was, one of the ones he gave in detail about how he caught her. Yeah, and thank goodness he did, because like I said, this was the big one. For I've, I've heard people who, you know, were there at the time. This was the story that always stuck with people in Seattle. Like, how the hell did he abduct George Ann Hawkins? And I'll just kind of paint a little picture for people that yeah, she's literally walking. She has about 50 feet to go, and then she's just gone, and there's no sound there's no witnesses there was no struggle there was no scream like in the movie they have a scream but there's no scream mm -hmm. yeah and so in real life how did he abduct her what was what was the mo um it was an mo that he used pretty frequently it turns out he was feigning an injury uh he was on crutches and he was carrying a briefcase and he was walking down the street and he saw her and he went up to her hobbling on his crutches and asked her, oh, you know, could you help me? I, I'm really having trouble carrying my briefcase. Um, just walk me to my car, you know, just a couple blocks that way. And, you know, being a nice, sweet girl, she's like, okay, sure, I'll help you out. And so, you know, they're walking along. She's carrying his briefcase to get to his car. He's got a crowbar hidden behind the tire. And then when she's not looking, he smacks her in the head, he stuffs her into the Volkswagen, and then he drives her out to rural uh, Issaquah, where he murders her ultimately. Yeah, and that's, that's it's not included in this movie because, again, people didn't know he hadn't confessed yet. So they, they assumed he stalked her and grabbed her from behind. So that's the one thing right from the start of this movie. It opens with a really chilling scene that's not quite accurate. <laughs> right. But yeah, so this is the sixth in a series of missing girls in Washington, and we kind of open, and then so you see that scene, and then we cut to a little uh, 
uh, a shot of Seattle, the Seattle waterfront, and we get an, uh, a, a voiceover, which is kind of interesting because there's never a voiceover at any point later in the movie, just at the start here. I guess that's true. Yeah. yeah. He's like, hi, my name is Richard Larson. You'll meet me soon. This is the story <laughs> of a nightmare. Our nightmare begins in Seattle in 1974 and ended for most of us in Miami in 1979. So, and with that, we're going to go meet Ted Bundy. So tell us about Ted Bundy. Who's Ted Bundy in 1974? Well, in 74, he um, lived in Seattle. Um, he was going to school at uh, University of Puget Sound. He was going to law school there first. Not a lot of people know that he actually went to law school before Utah. Um, but he was going to law school. He wasn't doing very well. Um, he was dating a woman in Seattle. And he was, what else was he doing in 74? <laughs> he was involved in, in politics. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a Republican, famously. He had worked on the Dan Evans campaign, and he was just well-known in political circles. And he also worked for the Department of Emergency Services during the summer when he was mur actively murdering people. Yeah, so Ted Bundy, a huge up-and-coming, you know, future successful person in Seattle going to law school. People think he's going to be a lawyer. He's well-known in political circles. He knows some really powerful and prominent people in Seattle. Very well-liked, very well-respected. Absolutely the last guy that you'd be thinking would be a mass murderer. And that's the whole point of the story, that it took a long time for people in Seattle to really buy into this idea that he could be guilty. And that you'll see that in this movie, which I think is very important because I think a lot of that gets lost in a lot of Ted Bundy movies. Just how how long it took people into in Seattle to really come to the realization that he might be a bad guy. And how much of a shock it was to everyone who knew him. They couldn't believe it. They thought he must have a split personality or like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing if it was true because it just didn't jive with anything they knew about him. Okay, let's talk about his girlfriend, because she's quite important to this story. And what's funny is she's uh, got several pseudonyms over the years. Now, are we allowed to say her real name at this point, or we still go by Liz Kendall? Um, I think she prefers Kendall, but everyone knows what name she was going by back then. So that's up to you, whatever you'd like to use. <laughs> All right. <laughs> she is, her name was Liz, and we'll say Kendall. That has been her pen name for years, and she's written books about what it was like to date Ted Bundy. Uh, she wrote a book called The Phantom Prince. Um, I, I don't particularly like that book that much. I don't think there's that much in there, but it's... it's. Really? I was going to say that's my favorite. Okay, we'll, go, we'll get to that in a second when we meet Liz. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so she was dating Ted Bundy, and uh, she's very important to the story, although they kind of minimize her a little bit in the story, I, did, I think, in this movie. But kind of explain to people who Liz is. Liz was um, originally from Utah. She moved to Seattle in 1969. She was divorced. She had a young child. At the time, I think her little girl was three, Molly. And she went to a bar one night in Seattle, and she met a young man named Ted Bundy. And they really hit it off. And they were dating up until the time he was arrested. Um, and, you know, mostly pretty serious, even though they never lived together. There was a lot of talk of marriage, um, of eventually settling down. She was very committed to him. He wasn't so committed to her. <laughs> what? How dare you suggest he was not faithful to his girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the worst thing he did. 
This Ted Bundy is starting to sound like a real creep cheating on his girlfriend. <laughs> I'm starting to think he might not be a good guy. Exactly. The, the more I learn about him, the less I like this character. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, in the movie, the, she's not known as Liz. She goes by Cass. She played by an actress named Glynis O'Connor. Uh, in the movie, she's very mousy, kind of weak, kind of needy and clingy. I don't know if she was like that in real life, but I will say whenever I watch this movie, my wife's like, I can't stand Cass in this movie. Like, I, I just don't like how whiny she is. Is Do you know much about her? Was she like this in real life? Um, yes. <laughs> you know, from the stories that I've been that I've heard, um, she was well. She she was very conflicted because she really loved him, um, but he didn't treat her very well. And I think he may have even targeted her because he knew she had insecurities and maybe some codependency issues, and he was able to manipulate her. And that might have been why he picked her to be his primary girlfriend um but she was she was kind of kind of needy and, and mouthy and <laughs> very very nice person um and you know instrumental in catching him uh as the movie touches on a little bit yeah i feel they really cut that out though that for people who don't know the ted bundy story Cass or liz god i don't i don't want to call her Cass. liz she is her call that really starts the ball rolling in seattle right to get the seattle police on his tail that's right. But they really, yeah, they cut that out in this movie. That's not really displayed. Yeah, I mean, it shows, it shows her calling them. Um, and at first, you know, they, in re, you know, in reality, they turned her away. They said, oh, no, we've looked at him. It's fine. Um, so she called again. Um, the first time wasn't enough. So, but she's the one who really put them, put him on the radar, I suppose. Um, and when she found out it was happening in Utah, where she was from, or he had just moved, she called again. She called three times. And finally, they were able to connect it. Okay, yeah, but for purposes of the movie, yeah, she's kind of needy, kind of clingy, kind of weak. Uh, you kind of get the sense in the movie that Ted is maybe a little out of her league. Like, this guy's going to be, the, they call him the future JFK. He's going to be a huge Republican politician, senator, whatever. And she doesn't feel like she's good enough for him. So that's that's kind of the, the dynamic. Would you say that's kind of accurate? I would say that's accurate. Yeah, and he enforced that. He, I think he made her feel insecure mm -hmm. um, on purpose, to some extent, to keep her in line. Um, but, you know, she was at the time, you know, she was divorced. She was a single mother and that was kind of looked down upon. Um, and she saw him as her prince, hence the title of that book, The Phantom Prince, you know, someone who could maybe rescue her from her situation of, of being a single mother. And so she really clung to him and he, and he encouraged that. Yeah, it's one of the things that, you know, when people recount the Ted Bundy story, they talk about the victims, you know, oh, we had 30 whatever victims, but people often leave out Liz, who was probably the biggest victim of all. Like, can you imagine having your fiance be this mass murderer? Like, can you, can you even imagine all the stuff she had to deal with over the years? I know. I can't. Yeah. And, you know, she's done a, she did a documentary in 2020. Um, and you can tell how much it devastated her to this day. Uh, she still tears up when she talks about it. Like it, 
and then she, you know she was even single for the rest of her life after that for the most part wow i didn't know that she just never yeah she she you know she got a rebound relationship immediately after ted and then when that ended maybe like a year later she was single for the rest of her life so you know you date ted bundy and you swear off men forever yeah, there's nowhere to go but up after Ted Bundy being your fiance. <laughs> yeah, but, that, you know, she really thought that he was the one. And so she was devastated. And to be fair, a lot of people thought he was the one. And that ties us into the next scene in the movie. We have this big party for all these big mucky mucks in Washington politics. And Ted Bundy's there and he's going around shaking hands. And again, there's like the senator, governor there. Like, Ted Bundy ran in some really high-powered circles. And this is where we meet Richard Larson, who's really his book turned into this movie. And Richard Larson, like I joked earlier, basically is in love with Ted Bundy. I just love how many times in this movie he will talk about how much he loves Bundy, how he's amazing, how I wish I could be him. I'm like, dude, just do him and get it over with. <laughs> yeah, he kept saying how he reminded him of him when he was younger and Oh, what he wouldn't give for the future, the dazzling future that's in front of Ted Bundy. That made me snicker a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and this and this part's all pretty accurate, right? I mean, there's some things that are embellished about Ted Bundy over the years, but I don't think this is embellished. He really was a pretty highly regarded figure in Republican politics at the time. He was definitely involved. Um, maybe not as involved as the movie made it out to seem. Like, he wasn't, you know, he didn't... He didn't actually babysit the governor's kids, uh, as opposed to the common rumor that he did. Um, he was an assistant to Ross Davis, who was the Republican chair in Washington. Um, and he was the assistant to Ross Davis. So he got to go to a lot of these functions, but he didn't necessarily know the governor. He wasn't on, you know, good speaking terms with the governor, I suppose. Okay. So with all, with all this established, we know who Ted Bundy is. We know who his girlfriend Liz is. We know that he's highly regarded. Now the movie jumps right into the big double murder day, which is, a, I always forget the movie jumps right into this. We're going right to Lake Sammamish. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a lot of personal experience with this next story. I grew up right on Lake Sammamish. It's, uh, I grew up in a city called Bellevue, Washington. It backs right into Lake Sammamish. That's where everybody at my school would go swimming. There's a park there called Idle, Idle Wild Park, I believe it was called, or Idlewood, I, I always forget. But we'd always go swim at the beach. You go around the coast a little bit, you get to Lake Sammamish State Park. So I have been at this lake many, many, many times. And it still to this day is creepy to me that this happened at a place that I know so well, this Lake Sammamish murder. I've never been. I know so much about it, and yet I've never been. I'd like to go someday. You should. It's a treat. Go in the summer. You, could, you don't want to see it in the, when it's cold. But, yeah, it's really nice. It's a good place to go in, in the spring and summer. Yeah, even though, you know, in the movie, they're sunbathing in total overcast <laughs> <laughs> on the beach on the beach at Lake Sammamish, trying to get that sun. Yeah, Tiffany and I were laughing about that in emails, that this Lake Sammamish scene in real life, it was like, 90 degrees it was a really hot summer day sunny day yeah yeah there's like 50,000 people like a huge thing at the lake and in the movie there's like six people at the beach and it's overcast so it's not quite the way it happened in real life all right so explain this scene in the movie to people because this is a very pivotal scene very infamous moment in washington state history the rare double murder day at lake sammamish so in the movie, 
uh, he approaches a young woman who is sunbathing in the shade, and he asks her to accompany him to his car because he needs help uh, loading a sailboat onto his car. And this really did happen. Um, and so she agreed, and she walked to his car, and she said, where's the sailboat? And he said, oh, actually, you know, I just really wanted to talk to you. You're a pretty lady. I thought, you know, it's, it's actually up at my parents' house in Issaquah. It's not very far. Um, we, you know, will you get in the car and accompany me? And we can go get it together. And she was like, mm, no, I don't think I want to do that. And um, she said no, declined, and she walked back to where she was. And then he's like, okay. And then he immediately identifies another woman, gives her the same line, but this time it works. And that was Janice Ott, the first victim at Lake, yeah, at Lake Sammamish. Um, and then not satisfied with that, he comes back and takes another girl. She gets up to go to the restroom and disappears. And then it goes to her friends and boyfriend looking for her. And they can't find her. And then that's when they call the police. Yeah, so Ted Bundy abducts two women from Lake Sammamish State Park on the same day, July 14th, 1974. 14th. Yeah, I knew you knew that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very infamous day in Washington State history. He kills one girl, comes back, gets another one. Actually, we don't know if he killed the first one. I don't want to get into the too graphic of details, but... It's entirely possible they saw each other and one watched the other one die. I don't know. Nobody does. Nobody does, yeah. So how did this, how did the movie display this that was different than real life? So the first thing, the, that day at Lake Sammamish was a huge party. It was the Rainier Brewery Beer Bash. And there were, I think you said, maybe 40,000, 50,000 people there. Very crowded. And I think he was counting on that for the anonymity. But in reality, he went up to several women, uh, most of whom rejected him. Um, but he was using the ruse of his arm was in a sling, he was injured, and he needed help loading a sailboat. That was accurate. Yeah, so basically you're saying in the movie he talks to one girl, she says no, then he gets Janice Ott, but in real life he talked to way more than one person. That's very true. Yeah, he probably, there were maybe 10 women who came forward um, and encountered Ted that day. I, I've, I've told Tiffany about this before. She's heard this story, but I want to explain to you guys that I, I went to, my high school is called Interlake High School. It's the closest high school to Lake Sammamish, so I... And I run our alumni group online on Facebook. And every so often on in the Interlake alumni group, someone will mention the Ted Bundy story. And you should see, I hate to joke about this, but you should see all these alums from Interlake from like 1971, 72, 73, that all say, I was at Lake Sammamish that day. I talked to Ted Bundy. I saw him. Like, I swear to God, if I listen to all the people that claim they talked to Ted Bundy that day, he talked to at least 25,000 women. <laughs> maybe not quite that many but it's just one of these things that everyone claims to have been there that day and they all saw him or had some interaction with him but it's i know they they think they did but there's no way they all did right no way and the ones that did mostly came forward i would imagine 
Because it was, it was all over the news. They wanted as much information about him as possible. Yeah, this was a very brazen crime in broad daylight abducting women on a beach, a very crowded beach. Although uh, <laughs> my wife was watching in the background. I was watching this movie today. She's like, why was he using his real name? And I'm like, you have to ask Ted Bundy why he was using his real name. Yeah, I've, I've wondered about that too. And I think I, I have a theory about that. And it's that he wasn't planning on using his real name. But when Janice Ott introduced herself, she said, hi, I'm Jan. He just had a reflex, you know, the charming guy that he is. Uh, oh, yeah, hi, I'm Ted. And I'll bet he was beating himself up about that later because that was the first major clue that they had. Yeah, for people who maybe not familiar with the story, that's what catches Ted Bundy really in the end, is that he's walking around giving his real name at the Lake Sammamish Day, and then the witnesses says, oh yeah, they say his name was Ted. And so his name will become the Seattle Ted, the Ted Killer, there was lots of names, but they always called him the Ted. I mean, yeah, like Tiffany said, he was probably kicking himself, because he was way too smart to be using his real name right in front of witnesses. Right. I think it was an, an accident. I don't think he meant to. Okay, and I, I do have to say, I have to. this is where I drop my pet peeve, and, and sure, I know no Tiffany has heard this before. In almost every book or movie or anything written about the Ted Bundy story, they shorten Lake Sammamish. They say, oh, locals refer to it as Lake Sam. <laughs> I will say, I've lived right next to that lake. I grew up there. I was on that almost every day. I have never in my life heard a local call it Lake Sam. So if you ever read that sentence in a book, it's bullshit. No one has ever called it that. I, when you told me that, I immediately, I don't think I ever used Lake Sam before, but I made sure not to use it after that, I mean, when you told me that. I, I have a, the slightest bit of influence on Tiffany's wonderful research. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never call it Lake Sam. Yes, please. That's all I can ask. You can say whatever you else you want. You can say Ted Bundy was Chinese. I don't care. Say whatever you want. Just don't fucking call it Lake Sam. That's all I ask people. <laughs> sure thing. Okay, so Ted Bundy has now just abducted two women on the same day. Very famous murder. Uh, again, I don't know what else to say about it. And now we meet the detectives that are trying to catch him. And this is a big part of the story that I think if you haven't watched this movie, you might you might think it's more about Ted Bundy, but it's not. It's really about the men trying to catch him who we have. Let's see. Uh, Bob Keppel is the main guy, played by Frederick Forrest. Who's the sheriff, played by M. Emmett Walsh? Do you remember who the sheriff is? Uh, Nick Mackey. Nick Mackey. Okay, he's in there. And these are the guys, and we go into their little headquarters now as they're trying to catch this guy. So in June of 1974, the day, or July, the day of the Lake Sammamish double murder, up to this point, there's been six murders, but they don't know their murders yet. These are just missing persons cases at this point, right? Right. They hadn't found any bones yet. Yeah. So the cops know that girls are missing around Washington. And I know it was making the papers. Like this was a story at the time. People kind of knew this was going on, but no one had connected it yet that it was one person doing it and that they were murders. Is that, have you found any research to say that I'm incorrect on that? Um, I think foul play was definitely suspected very quickly. And I think once Susan Rancourt was abducted in Ellensburg, um, they started seeing, you know, maybe there's a pattern here. Girls are disappearing from college campuses. This could be the same person. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't the first lead that they explored. At first, they assumed that it would be someone that they knew because 
everyone, that's how people, <laughs> that's how they did detective work back then. They just assumed. Uh, they hadn't, they had no concept of a serial killer yet. Yeah. And, and Bundy himself had a big background in like how police worked, how, you know, uh, police jurisdictions worked. So he was doing this on purpose, right? He would go to different colleges or different areas so they would never connect him. Right. That's what he was trying to do. He realized when he was working for them, <laughs> ironically, he worked for the Seattle Crime Commission for a little while. And he realized that a lot of jurisdictions just don't talk to each other that much. Um, and especially back then, uh, you, you need to have to do teletypes or pick up the phone and call or physical mail. Uh, it just wasn't that easy to share information. And so when the girls started disappearing, at first they weren't sure if they were connected. Um, I think it really maybe cemented when George Ann Hawkins disappeared that there were girls going missing from college campuses and that they were all probably linked. Yeah. Have I ever told you, you may not know this because this doesn't show up in the research, but have I ever told you about the... So I had a lot of friends that went to University of Washington. And at the time in the 90s, they always had uh, mirrors in the elevators. When you, when you're getting out of a mirror, when you were getting out of an elevator, there was a mirror so you could see who was around the corner. And someone said, "Oh, that's the Ted Bundy. They call those the Ted Bundy mirrors." And I'm like, "But why? He never jumped anybody outside an elevator." But that, apparently, that was a thing at UW in the '90s that they had these Ted Bundy mirrors. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Even though there's no factual basis for that. Right. I heard a rumor that the um, you know the Skywalk over, uh, I guess, Sorority Row, the alley where Georgian Hawkins disappeared. Mm -hmm. I heard a rumor that that was put in to protect girls so they wouldn't have to walk alone at night unprotected down that alley. But if you look at pictures from the crime scene, it was already there. Okay. I didn't know that. I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's one rumor that I heard from uh, UW alum. Yeah, so again, people have to remember this was very fresh. This is not just something that happened in, in a book or a movie. This is like real life. Like Linda Healy, the first murderer, she went to my rival high school. She went to Newport High School in Bellevue much earlier than me. But yeah, it's like when I read these stories, these aren't just names in a book. Like, oh, my God, that was someone from Newport. Okay, so uh, so Ted Bundy has abducted seven girls by this point, six or seven, I forget, but it's been going on. The cops are just baffled. They have no idea how to catch him. They think maybe they need a computer. Like, it's always funny when you watch this, we put it in context. They're like, you know, a computer would solve this. Like, computer is the wave of the future. You have to remember this is 1974, where they did not have a lot of computers yet. But we are going to focus on one person here in the story that's very important, and, and she is not mentioned in many Ted Bundy movies. And this is Denise Naslin's mother, Eleanor Rose. Yeah, it's interesting how they focused on her. I knew you. I knew that was going to stand out to you as weird, and, and, and I'll explain why. But explain, yeah, explain Eleanor Rose to people and kind of why she's important to the story. Um, so that was Denise Naslin's mother, and she was probably the most um, outward with her grief. Um, she was very, very distraught over the loss of her daughter. And um, she was very public about it. And so I think because of that, she gets kind of a, a leading role in the story and kind of summarizes all of the victim's family's pain um, and how, how that could wreak so much havoc on their loved ones. 
Yeah, she is a very prominent, sympathetic figure in this story. Her daughter gets abducted from Lake Sammamish. They have to go and tell her, and she just breaks down. And the reason I wanted to point that out is because if you grew up in Seattle like I did, you knew the name Eleanor Rose. And the reason why was because every year on the anniversary of the Lake Sammamish Day, they would go and interview her. So she'd be in like the newspaper. And this was like a yearly thing. And it was a big deal that Eleanor Rose was in the paper. Here's her interview. And they would always have a picture of her in a room. And she never changed Denise's room. She never moved Denise's car. She just never moved on. And she became the face of this story to everybody in Seattle. So because this movie is from the Seattle point of view, that's why she's so prominent in the movie. Because if you lived there, you knew her story every year. Every year it was in the newspaper. Every year you'd be reminded about it. She was very open with her grief, and I feel like a lot of the other families, you know, wanted to mourn in private, um, but she definitely wanted to share how horrible this incident was and how much it affected her. Yeah, and there's a there's a terrible scene here in the movie where they're like, you know, later they find Denise's body, and they can't give it to the mom to have a funeral because it's like evidence in a murder trial. And so the mom's like, can I at least give her a Catholic mass? And they're like, no, I'm sorry, like, you, we need the body. And in real life, I, I didn't they lose her body? Didn't they lose the remains? They sure did. Her and um, Janice Ott were both lost, and they never got to have a burial. Yeah, and that is not in the movie, fortunately. But yeah, it, it's some of these stories are even worse than you think they are. Right. I think that's around when it happened. There may have been a year or so earlier than that. Um, but yeah, even when the case was closed, in 1989, they weren't able to give her anything to bury. Yeah, I was going to say, this movie is chilling enough on its own. Like, this is a creepy movie. For a TV movie, it kind of gets under your skin, especially towards the end. But the story of Ted Bundy and the reality is even worse. And, like, <laughs> did you notice how sanitized this movie was? How, like, they don't really get into the details of what Bundy does when he kills people. They just, he, like, kills them and walks away, and that's it. Right. Well, they didn't really know, I suppose, at that time. Um, but also, you know, it was supposed to be sanitized for television audience. Um, and, I, you know, some so they, they argued that they did that on purpose, too, to not sensationalize the crime. Well, it was funny because even as a kid, when I'd read about the Ted Bundy story back in the 80s and 90s, like, I literally thought that's just what happened. He just whacked someone over the head, killed them. That was what, how, what he got off on, and then he just walked away. Like, because the books, the books didn't really delve into what happened after that. And I'm glad they didn't because I would have, it would have been a little more horrific if you know the other details. But yeah, that's one thing specifically about this movie. It's a TV movie. So yeah, I mean, cracks him over the head and then walks away. That's really, that's how the movie presents it. Right. Because they, you know, they can't really show what actually happened. It would be too, <laughs> too horrible. Yeah. And we're not mentioning it either, but you can probably fill in the blanks. All right, so, so Ted Bundy has abducted two women at Lake Sammamish and then uh, makes all the news. And I know from my aunts and relatives and stuff how, what a big story this was at the, uh, at the time that two women disappeared from Lake Sammamish on the same day in broad daylight, except one witness comes forward to the, the police and says, oh, his name was Ted. I saw him. He had a cast on his arm. This makes the news, the Seattle Ted. And this, I think, is where his girlfriend, Liz, starts to suspect him a little bit, right? Because she reads the news story. She's like, hey, a Ted who drives a VW, that kind of sounds like my fiance. Right. And they published a sketch of him 
um, in the papers. And she thought, huh, that does kind of look like him. When I see this guy, I don't really see the resemblance, but apparently she did. Um, and it was enough to, you know, incite her to contact the police. Yeah, and I think also this is where we start getting some tips from Central Washington, where Susan Rancourt was murdered, where people said, oh, yeah, there was a guy with a sling dropping his books around there, too. So the police are starting to realize what this guy's M.O. is and what he does. Right. And they probably, if he had not done Lake Sammamish, they probably would never would have connected any of them or caught him, for sure, if he got brazen. Yeah, that's the question. Why? This is, okay, we're just going to speculation here, but Ted Bundy had a very specific MO. He was very sneaky, very careful. Why all of a sudden did he try to get two girls in broad daylight on the same day? Do you just think he was getting brazen? I think he was getting brazen. I felt, I think he thought he would blend in with the crowd that was there and that no one would notice him. But people did notice him <laughs> enough to get his name and his car. And that was, you know, the first major clues that the police had who this person was. Yeah. And so now here comes the unfortunate part of the story, at least for the Washington detectives. Right when they're starting to figure out that there's this serial killer abducting women in Washington and his name's Ted and he's got a VW bug, Ted Bundy moves. <laughs> so this really throws the uh, the investigation into a disarray because all of a sudden Ted is moving down to Utah to go to law school. Kind of give people a history on why he ended up there and not some other school. Um, he didn't really want to go to University of Utah for law school, but they accepted him. And they were one of the few schools that did because he actually wasn't that great of a student. Um, and he didn't do that well on the on the law school entrance exams. Um, but Utah did accept him, and he had, because his girlfriend, Liz, was from Utah, he had a connection to the state, and he decided to move down to Salt Lake and go to law school. Yeah, this is one of those uh, myths about Ted Bundy that I think needs to be dispelled, and I know you will be the first one to be happy to do this, is that the common wisdom around Ted Bundy is that this guy was a genius, and he was an amazing student and a huge scholar and was going to be a lawyer. And but none of that is really true, correct? Correct. Uh, he wasn't a very good student um, and he didn't do very well on his on his exams. He was good at talking like he was a good student, mm -hmm. and like a smart person. Um, he had that talent, that skill, um, but he didn't have a lot to actually back it up. So that contributed to the myth of, of him being a genius because, because he portrayed himself as one. Yeah, and I know they gave him like IQ and diagnostic tests in prison and he was like nothing special, right? Maybe a little above average, if anything. Yeah, a little bit above average. I think maybe 122 was the IQ that they gave him, which you know is above average, but it's not a genius for certain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of myths about how good Ted was in school. He really wasn't. And I think you said University of Utah, one of the only schools that would even take his application and talk to him. They're like, yeah, sure, why not come down here? But there's one more myth that I want to dispel since we're talking about that a little, is that for years, and I think the average layperson probably still believes this, that Ted Bundy was the most smooth-talking, silver-tongued devil ever, that he could somehow talk women into his car even though they knew it was a bad idea. And that is generally a myth, correct? He wasn't actually talking them into his car. He just basically clubbed them from behind when they weren't looking. 
Well, he also played on their sympathy because he would often pretend to be injured and need their help. And girls, especially back then, were taught, you know, be nice, be friendly, be helpful. Um, and he really played to their weakness in that way because they were so kind that they were willing to help someone they thought was hurt. Um, and he knew that they would. So he took advantage of that. It wasn't him convincing them through smooth talking. It was him acting like he really needed some help. Well, yeah, the sympathy is one thing, but I think a lot of people to this day still think that once they get to his car, that he somehow talks them into their car, which I, I, I've always thought, thought feel is a huge disservice to these women. It makes them sound stupid. I suppose so, but yeah, but, you know, they agreed to help him to his car. Yeah, they'd go to his uh, car. Maybe yeah. put, a brief, put a briefcase in his car for him, and then they expected to leave. And, but instead, he had a crowbar hidden away, and he would hit them over the head, just as, probably just as they were turning to leave. He'd sucker punch them, basically. Yeah, exactly. But that's the one thing I just wanted to dispel, that so many people just couldn't believe. How is he talking these girls into his car once they get there and they see there's no passenger seat? But the reality is he really doesn't. He just clubs them. So it's, he's not quite as smooth-talking a devil as you think he was. Right. I think part of that myth comes from the trials when he was representing himself. But at that time, he wasn't, he definitely wasn't smooth talking them into getting in his car for sure. Okay, so let's uh, go down to Utah. So the Washington part of the story is over. Ted moves down to Utah where he, again, he is, really is trying to be a lawyer. He is, uh, as we'll learn later, Bundy is successfully leading a double life as a law student and a serial killer. That's going to start to go away once he gets to Utah and he realizes serial killing is more fun, I think would be the way to say it. It becomes an obsession, yeah. He gets really, yeah, really, uh, what would be the right word? It overtakes his life. He's no longer allowed, uh, able to lead a double life. Okay, so he's in Utah. He's down there going to law school, University of Utah. We see a couple scenes of Mark Harmon cruising around in, car, in his car looking for women. And this is when all the bodies start turning up in Washington, where they now they realize they have a serial killer. So talk about these two dump sites. So the first one um, was at Issaquah. Um, well, the first one that was discovered was in Issaquah, um, pretty close to Lake Sammamish. And um, there were three uh, remains, sets of remains that were found there. Um, the Lake Sammamish victims, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. And George Ann Hawkins um, was actually the first victim that was taken to this location. Um, so those were the three that were there. There was a second location that was actually older than that one, but it was the second one that was discovered. Uh, it wasn't discovered until March of 1975, I believe. Um, and that was all of the earlier victims. So Linda Healy, who disappeared from University of Washington, um, Susan Rancourt um, from Ellensburg, um, Kathy Parks from OSU, Oregon State. Brenda Ball, who disappeared from a tavern in Burien, Washington. Um, and they expected to find Donna Manson, who disappeared from Evergreen State in Olympia. Um, she was never found. But they found the rest of them. And they realized that they were all being killed by the same person and dumped in the same place. Yeah, and if I recall, they all have basically fairly similar or identical fractures at the back of the skull where the crowbar hit them. That's one of the things that tipped them off. 
Yeah, they all had pretty major skull damage. Mm -hmm. They never found all of their skulls. Um, for instance, well, George Ann Hawkins, Janice Ott, Linda Healy, they only found a jawbone. Not very much at all. But the rest of them that they did find skulls for, uh, there was a lot of damage, which implied that he had really injured them, fractured their skulls. Yeah, so that first dump site, at, uh, it's right behind uh, Lake Sammamish. If you go, if you leave Lake Sammamish on I-90, you go east a little bit, just a couple exits you would hit to where he would have turned off. It was like a little logging road or something. I kind of forget. He drove up into the woods, and that's where his dump site would. He'd basically take the girls there, crack them over the head, uh, choke them, do whatever. And then, <laughs> but that was where it, it's really close to, to Lake Sammamish. Issaquah's right behind it. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, like I said, I used to drive people around in Seattle to the Ted Bundy, the reality tour at all the locations. But that, that location, I would not go anywhere near, which I don't think you can find it anyway. But the dump site is off limits. Let's just put it. I have ethics, and we're not going there. We'll go everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, the Issaquah one is very difficult to find. The Taylor Mountain one, you can still re find it, and it looks almost exactly the same as it did in the crime scene photos today fun fact <laughs> <laughs> okay so ted's down in utah and again they're just spinning their wheels and everyone's panicked and again if you know the ted bundy story you know it moved to utah it never goes back to washington but if you lived in washington at the time you didn't know that like i think the panic and the fear probably kept going in 75 until he was arrested in utah like it it doesn't just go away because the guy goes away you're still terrified so Man, that must have been a terrifying thing if you were a young woman in your 20s with long hair in Seattle. Yeah, there were a lot of uh, articles that were published, in the, especially in the student newspapers, about how women could protect themselves and defend themselves. Um, and at the time, they were really worried about hitchhiking. Um, and so they were you know, really actively discouraging hitchhiking. Um, but they were also just telling women to be very careful and not trust anybody. Okay. We got to talk about one thing here that I, I got to talk about this and I got to get your stance on this. So it has long been the stereotype that Ted Bundy would, he had a type, he would kill young, attractive women with long hair parted in the middle. And they always, they always make a big deal about that. The parted in the middle. Yeah. It was just a common hairstyle. Yeah, exactly. Ted Bundy himself has disputed that. He's like, no, I wanted pretty girls and pretty girls just all wore their hair that way that time. But it's it's funny how that's been repeated over the years that the long hair parted in the middle was like his type. Especially the long, dark hair parted in the middle, um, which Ann Rule is probably responsible for. She's the one who repeated that most often. Um, but several of his victims were blonde. I don't think he discriminated much on hair color. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that he preferred women with long hair um, but most women in the young women in the 70s had long hair parted in the middle and that's just kind of a coincidence yeah i would guess i think you probably have more evidence of this that in some interview he said i liked young cute girls who had a certain sense of like naivete or eagerness or helpfulness like i think that's what probably he was looking for someone that would buy into his shtick right and he would observe them before, oftentimes he would stalk them for a while before he would try and pick them up and observe their behavior. 
and see which one seems the most vulnerable. Yeah, see, I knew I knew there had been rumors that he stalked some of these, but I'd never seen a lot of evidence. You've seen more of the evidence. So which ones in Seattle? Which ones in Seattle did he stalk? I know Linda Healy, they always have said he stalked her around the campus. Linda Healy, um, Karen Sparks was the first victim who survived. He absolutely stalked her. Um, who else? He didn't stalk Jordan Hawkins. Um, didn't stalk Brenda Ball. I'm trying to think who else he stalked. Oh, uh, Kathy Parks in at Oregon, in Oregon State University. Yeah, he had been following her around, and her father had just had a heart attack, and she was on a payphone talking about it, and he overheard how upset she was about that, and he re he knew that she was in a vulnerable state of mind, and maybe more open to suggestion. He confessed that much later to Bill Hagmeyer, that, that scenario. Yeah, so it was definitely the scenario as much as the looks that he definitely... Now, he was he was really stalking them, not lightly stalking them like Mark Harmon, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to clarify, we're going to be clearing up some terms here. Right. Not stalking light, yeah. Yeah, stalking light. So... Now, speaking of Ted Bundy following victims and stalking them and learning their patterns, we're about to get to the one murder in this book, in this movie, that I don't know is historically accurate. And I'm dying to get your thoughts on this. And I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Is it Aim or Amy? Laura Aim? Is that right? Amy. Okay, Laura Amy. So talk about this scene in the movie, Laura Amy. This is the first murder we see him do in Utah. Yeah, which is unusual because it definitely wasn't his first murder in Utah. Um, it happened much later. Uh, I think it may have, may have been his third murder in Utah. Um, but the interesting thing about her in this movie is that Larson, and in the book as well, Larson really bought into the idea that he had been actively stalking Laura Amy to the point of hanging out with her and her friends approaching her on a football field and flirting with her. And that's very unlikely to be true. Um, and that comes from after she disappeared and after Ted was arrested, one of her friends uh, came forward and said, oh, yeah, I, I saw Ted. He was hanging out with her and he would follow her around. And I saw him at this restaurant that all the teenagers hung out at. I saw him at a, at a beer bash at a tiger um, and that got put into the record. Hmm. And I think Larson must've seen that um, and assumed that that was accurate. Um, but I have the transcript of her interview and it, it does not seem accurate to me. It seems more like this was just maybe some other teenager. Um, she also, she also claims that Ted was, following her around even before he moved to Utah. <laughs> wow. Uh, in the summer, in the summer of 74, she claims to have seen him hanging out with Laura. Um, and that's just not possible. So like I said, I really like this movie. It's very accurate. This is the one scene that's not particularly accurate. We see Laura Amy. She's really tall girl, six feet tall, played by, by the way, uh, future star Terry Farrell, who was a, Big shot model slash actress. This is like one of her first movies. It's interesting seeing her pop up in here. 
But yeah, she's saying goodbye. She's leaving for to move somewhere. She's moving out of her house. Her mom's like, you know, there's all these girls missing. You don't want to you be be safe. Don't 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 be trusting of the wrong man. And, the, and Laura's like, oh, don't worry, mom. I'll be fine. I'm six feet tall. I can take care of myself. I can just you know, some guy tries to grab me. I can fight him off. And and the next scene is Ted Bundy meeting her on a football field and hanging out with her and her friends, and they're like playing catch. Which there's no way that happened. There's no way Ted Bundy would have done that. No, absolutely not. And she lives in Lehigh, which is a decent drive from Salt Lake. Um, and all of that comes from this one friend of, of Laura's who claimed that he had been hanging out at this restaurant and seeing her every week, <laughs> that he was down there every week. Wow. Um, it just isn't possible. <laughs> you know, I just think it's funny that Larson went to such lengths to name this the deliberate stranger. And then they go on and on about how Ted only kills people he can't be connected to. And then they make up this fake story of him just, you know, palling around with Laura Amy and not being a stranger. I know. I, I noticed that too. It directly contradicts the title of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, so Laura Amy, yeah, she is uh, going to disappear from a Halloween party. We see her. She's drunk one night, and she uh, goes out for some cigarettes, and we see the old Ted Bundy following her. You see the footsteps closely behind her, which there's no way that happened in real life, but it, it's, it makes it for a dramatic scene in the movie. We'll give them that. Nobody really knows how she disappeared, but she did leave a – she left the Halloween party, and then she disappeared. That part's accurate. He, ne he never confessed to what he did to her. Okay, and so after he kills Laura Amy, who's like his third or fourth victim in Utah, we have a scene, and we'll see this a lot in the movie, that every time Ted Bundy kills somebody, he goes home and he calls his girlfriend Liz back at home. And this is accurate, right? Yep, that is accurate. He would do that often um, to touch base with reality is the way he put it. Hmm. In the, yeah, I think in the movie. So he says touch base with reality. In the movie, they say it's like he has to check in with mommy and check and make sure everything's okay still. He's still a good boy. <laughs> right. Yeah, but in the movie, they really highlight this as one of the reasons they can pinpoint all these murders. They just trace his phone records. They're like, oh, look, every time a girl disappeared, he calls his girlfriend. <laughs> That's not quite accurate, but um, he did do that somewhat frequently. Okay, so here we go. So Ted Bundy has really gotten away. It's a cliche, gotten away with murder. But he has gotten away with murder many times. And he's about to screw up. And this is another really pivotal moment in the Ted Bundy story. The uh, the mall, the Fashion City Mall. Fashion Place Mall. Fashion Place Mall, yeah, in Utah. So the way it's presented in the movie is really not how it happened in real life. But I will let you talk about that. So how do they describe this in the movie the crime that really is going to end up getting Ted Bundy arrested for the first time. I mean, it wasn't entirely inaccurate. Uh, he posed as a police officer. Um, he approached a young woman at a mall and said, your car has been broken into. We've got a suspect. We need you to come outside to the parking lot and identify, uh, identify your car. And so we can uh, book this subject, this suspect. And she agrees to do it, and she walks with him out of the mall and into the parking lot. And he says, oh, well, you know, the, the suspect's gone. I mean, they must have taken him down at the station, so you have to come with me, and we're going to get in my car, and I'll drive you to the station so you can fill out some paperwork. And 
she's like, well, you know, I'm out here at my car. It doesn't look like anything's missing. It seems like it's fine. And he's like, no, no, you should come with me. And so she kind of reluctantly agrees. Um, and she does ask him for identification. Uh, he flashes a badge at her really fast. And she's like, oh, well, okay, I guess he's a police officer. And she, re- she looks at his Volkswagen and she thinks, that's a strange car for a police officer driving. He must be undercover or something. So she gets into the car with him and quickly she realizes they're not headed towards the police station. And he very quickly, abruptly pulls over and tries to handcuff her to the glove box in the Volkswagen. And she starts putting up a huge fight. He isn't able to get both of her uh, hands in the handcuffs. And she's fighting with him. And he pulls a gun because he's trying to intimidate her into being quiet. And she just fights harder. And she gets out of the car. And as she's exiting the car, he picks up the crowbar that he had hidden inside the car and tries to hit her with it. She's fighting with him. And she manages to fend off the crowbar that's coming down. She probably had adrenaline strength. And she gets to, she breaks away. And she happened, there happens to be a couple that's driving by at this exact moment. And she's able to jump into their car and escape. So overall, that, that scene was, was pretty accurate to what really happened. Okay, yeah, I was thinking more at the start because it happens inside a mall and they they go to a couple substations before they get in the car. Yeah, it's they, they truncate it a little bit. That's true. They truncate it, yeah. Everything that happens once they get in the car is real, that he tries to abduct this girl. He pulls his car over once she's in his car. He tries to hit her and it fails. And she really is... The only is she the only person who survived Ted Bundy? I mean, there's been stories over the years that other women were in his car and got out safely, but I think factually she's the only one that's been proven to escape from him. That's true. That's been verified. There've been other stories, yeah, but she's the one who definitely was able to escape. And I have to say, in the movie, this is a fantastic scene. I, there's several scenes in this movie I really like. I really like the way they do this in the TV movie, where. This is the first scene in the movie where Mark Harmon has to be actively violent towards someone. And you can really see it in his eyes. I mean, again, this guy's a former college football player. He's a big, strong athlete. When his eyes go black and he snaps and he starts lunging at it with that crowbar, like he's scary. So it's, I really like the way they do this scene. Yeah, I think he, I think it's very accurate too. And then what happens in real life, they don't show this in the movie, but he tries to kill Carol Durant. It doesn't work. She escapes. He's getting, he's mad. He immediately goes and kills another girl, Debbie Kent, later that night. But they don't. They for some reason they cut they cut that out of the movie. Yeah, they skipped over that. I think they briefly mentioned that there was a girl missing um, on that same night, but just very briefly. But um, that's yeah, and that's actually a major part of the story too. So that the same night that Carol Durant gets away, he immediately guns it towards uh, Bountiful, Utah, which is a northern suburb of Salt Lake City. Um, He goes to this high school that he must have selected in advance. And there's a play that night. And a girl at the high school is walking out to her parents' car alone. And he's able to abduct her, but not without dropping the key to the handcuffs that he had used on Carol DeRange. 
And so when they're looking for this, her name is Deborah Kent. So they're looking for Deborah Kent and they find this key of, of, to these handcuffs and they're able to connect that crime to Carol DeRange, who was able to escape because that key opened up the handcuffs that were still attached to her. Yeah, that that's a shocking omission from this movie. I really wish they would have filmed that scene just because that's like when I think of the Ted Bundy story, that Deborah Kent night, that's. That's one of the, the the visuals I always think of. That's that was one of the more harrowing incidents. Yeah, and it was a major point in the case too when they were able to connect the key to Carol Durange. Okay, so let's talk about one of the most heartbreaking scenes in this movie. And again, we're this movie, this podcast is going along. I'm gonna I'm gonna shorten it up real quick. We're gonna yada yada through some stuff. But there's one more scene here I really have to talk about just because I like this movie, and that is where. The the police find the body of Laura Amy, the tall girl who disappeared from the Halloween party. And we talked to the, the police have to go and go to her parents. And they're like, you know, we found a body. Can you come down to the morgue to identify it? They're like, we don't think it's her, but can you please come down and rule it out? And oh, my God, this scene is harrowing. You, you know, the scream that I'm talking about, right? Yeah, and that's accurate. That That's how it happened? Yep, that's how it happened. Okay, describe this to people, because again, I've seen this movie dozens of times over the years, and I never forget this scene. This is the one that haunts me, this moment. Right. So they take Laura Amy's parents down to the morgue, and um, the father goes in to identify the body, and the camera remains on the mother who stays outside. And, you know, within a few seconds, you hear this anguished, horrible scream from the father. And but the camera stays focused on the mother the entire time, and you see her just break down and start sobbing. It's very sad, and it's totally true. That's exactly how it happened. Oh, that's awful. Oh my god. Yeah, that's again, again. This is just a silly little TV movie, very sanitized. But that scene will haunt you. There's a couple scenes that will haunt you, and wait till we get to the Chi Omega. That one will really haunt you. Okay, so I'm going to skip over some things just so we can finish, because we're still in part one of this movie, and this is a two-part movie. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I could talk about Ted all day. I know, that's the thing. I knew this was going to happen. You, you, can, we could keep going, too. But uh, So, yeah, Ted is just keep killing women in Utah. We go back to uh, Washington. His fiance Liz, is starting to put the pieces together, and her friends are encouraging her. You know, you're going to call in this tip that I think Ted Bundy, your fiance, is the Ted that's killing people. And one of the, her friends says there's girls missing in Utah now. Like, this is not a coincidence. Call it in. So Cass has to, uh, or Liz, Liz has to decide whether to call it in. And now we go to Ted going out to Colorado where he expands his, uh, his crime spree. And this is one he's eventually going to get nailed for. This is the Wildwood Inn. Talk about this murder here. So um, by the start of 1975, this murder happened January 12th, 1975, he was getting a lot of uh, heat in, in the Salt Lake area because too many girls were going missing in too short of amount of time. Um, he moved there in September, and by December, there had been multiple missing women and two bodies found, and he realized he needed to get out of town. Um, so he wouldn't attract so much attention. So he decides to go to Aspen, Colorado. And he's familiar with the city because he'd been there before, uh, 1968. He'd been skiing there. 
And he decides this is a good place to do this again. So what happens in the movie is you see the scene where this young woman is, you know, kissing her fiance and acting really happy and lovey-dovey. And she's like, oh, I have to go grab a magazine from my room. I'll be right back, honey. And she goes up to the room and you see her walking down the hallway and then it fades to black and she disappears. And that is basically what happened. Nobody knew how she could disappear um, just going up to her room. Um, and that's because similar to Georgian Hawkins, she was lured away by uh, Ted Bundy pretending he needed help. And did you say her name? This is Karen Campbell. That's a very famous Bundy victim. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Karen. Yeah, Karen Campbell. So how was it different in real life? How did this differ? So in real life, she was actually having an argument with her fiancé. Um, and he told her to go up and get the magazine by herself. Um, and he probably regretted that because that was the last thing he would ever say to her. And so she's the part where she goes up to the room is accurate. She never makes it to the room. Um, it's an outdoor motel. And in the pool area, she sees a young man struggling with um, his ski boot. He's like, and he seems injured from a day of skiing. And the way Ted Bundy tells it much later is that she volunteered to help him. And she actually went down two flights of stairs and said, I'm going to, I'd love to help you. You seem like you need help. And he was, you know, overjoyed that she was going to help him. <laughs> and he walks her out to the parking lot and does the same thing with her. He had a crowbar hidden uh, under the car, hits her, and um, drives her out uh, to this kind of isolated area. And they don't, they find her body um, several months later. Yeah, although I should point out here that in Bundy's timeline here, he's starting to get a little sloppy. His, his Washington crimes are very meticulous. He's doing about one a month. There's no evidence. This one with Karen Campbell is a little too slipshod by his standards. He ends up, you know, there's a couple hairs from her body that are going to get found in his car later. So he's starting to slip up now. He's not quite as controlled as he used to be. And is that because... Is, is he drinking more? Is that the issue now? Or is he just starting to lose control? Yeah, he was, he had a problem with alcohol and he was drinking more. Um, he also made a major mistake of paying for the gas to get out there on a credit card. And so all of these gas purchases in Colorado show up and they're able to verify that he is in Aspen at that time when this murder occurred. Um, and I think he's also just starting to get a little brazen. He hasn't been caught yet. He's been doing this since, you know, as far as anyone knows, at least three different states. In reality, it's probably more like five at that point. Um, and so he thought, well, I'm probably untouchable. Yeah, one of the things about Bundy that I think would people be amazed to know, the more you read about him, how amazing it is he got away with it for as long as he did. The The gas receipts, like Ted Bundy, you know this, Tiffany, that, Ted Bundy was famous for, he'd fill up with gas all the time, just like little amounts, $4 here, $5 here, 6 So there's gas receipts all over the place. He's leaving these left and right, and I don't know why he didn't think that would be traceable one day. Right. I don't either. <laughs> it's 
quite a mystery. Yeah, it's amazing. He he was like the luckiest guy ever that he got away with this. And although, so he's about to get arrested in uh, August sixteenth, nineteen seventy five. He's going to get arrested in in Utah. Just some cops sees him prowling a house and he pulls him over. But I just wanted to point out that date that all the stuff that Ted Bundy did, like he's killed countless thirty, forty, whatever women. It's only in like a year and a half. And that's the thing people really have to put into perspective. It starts in like February 74. He gets arrested in August 75. That's only a year and a half. Almost all his murders take place in. That's astounding the pace that he was doing. Right. And that's why he wasn't able to maintain his double life and why he was drinking so much. Yeah. He's a professional killer by the time he gets to Utah. I know he's hardly going to law school. He barely shows up in class. Like, this is his job at this point. He's just a killer. Yeah, it's become an obsession. All right, so let's talk about his arrest, which they hilariously point out in the movie that every single time Ted Bundy gets arrested, it's because he's a bad driver. And so yeah, later in the movie, true. they're like, yeah, yeah. Later in the movie, they're like, we'll sentence him to the electric chair and remedial driver's ed because he's about to get <laughs> arrested here for the first time. So talk about this one in Granger. Um, so he's hanging out outside of um, this young woman's house. Um, the teenager uh, who had just gotten off of work, I actually called her and spoke to her. <laughs> oh, oh, and Mark Harmon's the lightly stalker now. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to know, I wanted to know from her perspective. So anyway, uh, he's um, hanging out outside her house, probably about to abduct her. Uh, and then there was a cop who had just gotten off of duty who happened to be her neighbor. And he sees this strange looking Volkswagen and it's the middle of the night. It's three o'clock in the morning. And he's like, well, I don't, I don't, I know everyone in this neighborhood. I don't know who this person is. I'm going to go check it out. And so he's driving down the street. He shines his headlights onto this Volkswagen and Ted gets spooked and he takes off. And immediately the cop thinks this is really suspicious. I need to follow this guy. So he puts on his siren. He's following Ted through the neighborhood, Ted runs several stop signs and uh, tries to beat him in some kind of high-speed chase in this little Volkswagen. Obviously, he can't beat the cop car. He eventually realizes he needs to pull over. He pulls over, and he tries to give a song and dance about how, oh, I was just lost in your neighborhood, and oh, I was, I got lost. I went to this drive-in movie, and the cop asked him, well, which movie was it? And he gives him the wrong, he said, The Towering Inferno, uh, which was out at that time, but it wasn't playing at the theater um, because he was in, you know, the cop was in the neighborhood and he knew what movies were playing in the theater. So immediately he was suspicious and he asked if he could look in his car and Ted gives him permission, which is pretty stupid of him because the cop finds a satchel full of a ski mask and a pantyhose mask and an ice pick and rope um and a crowbar <laughs> and they also find handcuffs in the car and this looks awfully suspicious and here's ted dressed head to toe in all black uh hanging out in this suburban neighborhood in the middle of the night and the cop thinks i need to arrest this guy something's not right here he's he's acting really 
he's smiley and, and nice and friendly. He's got a good story, but I know this story is false. And so he's like, I'm going to arrest you for evading police. And he does. He books him. And that's the first time Bundy is arrested. And this uh, cop just happens to be the brother of the uh, sheriff in Salt Lake City. And he mentions, well, this really weird thing happened the other night. I arrested this guy. He had a crowbar. He had handcuffs. He was driving a VW. And um, the police chief had just heard from Seattle, like, wow, this really matches the cases that are up there. And so that's when they really started putting two and two together and realizing Ted Bundy was probably the, the suspect that they were looking for. Yeah, it's really funny when I watch the scene, and I know this is accurate, like Ted Bundy, for all he knew about the law and all he knew about, you know, police and crime and stuff, why did he give them permission to search his car? Like, you'd think he would know better than that. You'd think he would, yeah. And later he tries to say it was an illegal search and that he'd never given permission. Um, but, yeah, but they, they did search his car, and he claims that it was uh Ted just gave him permission, and so they were able to find all that evidence. I've got a murder kit on the front seat, but sure, search away. I don't care. <laughs> Maybe he just thought he couldn't get caught. <laughs> now, I gave you, I teased you about lightly stalking the girl who was in the house that Ted Bundy was stalking, but now I have to ask, what did she say? Now I'm dying to know what she said about this. She didn't really know anything. Uh, she knew that he had been outside of her house. Um, she had been fast asleep at three of the clock in the morning that night. Um, and she said a couple of days later, uh, the cop, whose name was uh, Bob Hayward, uh, came over to her house, showed her a picture of Ted Bundy, showed her a picture of the car. And um, she, he was like, have you ever seen this person around here? And she said, no, I've never seen, seen him at all. And so she said she told herself that, oh, he was just happened to be outside my house. He wasn't stalking me. And that's how she was able to get through it. And then she goes, but, you know, in retrospect, he probably was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he probably was. So she got very lucky that night that Bob Hayward, the cop, happened to be there. Yeah, and really, this is kind of the end of Ted's murder spree. And in the movie, we're about halfway through. So that's, Ted's a murderer for the first half. And really, the second half of this movie is his legal troubles and his law and his trial and stuff. So I'm going to skip through a lot of this because it's kind of redundant. But... For all intents and purposes, his murder career ends here with his arrest in Granger in 1975. And I think it all kind of the ball starts rolling here where the news gets back up to Seattle that Ted Bundy was arrested. And I think their computer up in Seattle identifies Ted Bundy as a prime suspect because Cass is called in. And so all of a sudden, all these people are comparing notes. They're like, oh, my God, like this mild mannered law student might be a mass murderer. And I think. We're going to go through a long stretch of the movie where we see Dick Larson, Richard Larson, his his perspective on this, since he's the one that wrote the book, him coming to grips with the fact that this guy who he's in love with <laughs> could be a mass murderer. So it's it's really fascinating to watch him come to the realization over this as the movie goes. Right. And you can see, the you know, he's talking to the other cops who are investigating the case and they're convinced and, and Larson still holds back. He's like, oh, I can't talk bad about Ted. I don't know for sure that he's guilty. Yeah, I think, and I think we have the police. There's a police lineup here in Utah where Carol Durand, she's the girl who survived the kidnapping. She picks Ted Bundy out of a lineup. So all the pieces are coming together, and I think we have 
the real cops in real life there was a guy named fisher in colorado mike fisher jerry thompson in utah and then bob keppel in seattle so they basically become a team where they start comparing notes and try to put the story together right exactly they become the the task force and that's all pretty accurate yeah so at this point really it's a public relations battle where Lots of people think Ted Bundy is a serial killer, but there's a huge push, and this is accurate. I know Tiffany must have found some stuff that backs this up. This was a huge thing in Seattle. There was a big media push by his friends and prominent people to say, let's not jump to judgment. There's no way that Ted Bundy we knew could have done this. So it's very, very much kind of a 50-50 split in public opinion at this point. That's right. Um, the people who knew him in Seattle, um, saw him as a nice guy and he you know one thing that isn't commonly known is that Ted when he moved to Utah joined the Mormon church and he made friends with a lot of Mormons and they all supported him too because they thought one of our own is being falsely accused so he did have a lot of friends that he was able to convince that he was innocent yeah and I will say when I was a teenager and I read the first book that uh, the first book I ever read was Ted Bundy, the killer next door, which I don't know if that's one of the bigger ones. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah. When it when in Merrill. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading that book and for like the first 300 pages of that book, I thought Ted might be innocent because he talks such a good game. Yeah. And you know, they didn't have a lot of really, really strong evidence on him. Um, they didn't have fingerprints for instance which was, you know, the smoking gun at the time. Um, and he was careful not to leave any clues behind at any of the scenes about who he could be. So it was easy for his friends to believe that, well, maybe he was falsely accused. Yeah, and this was, again, very historically accurate, where a lot of people, it took a lot of people a lot of time to come around to the fact that not only could Bundy do this or but that there was such a thing as a serial killer who would just murder strangers and move around to a different jurisdiction. Because again, that really didn't exist before 74, at least not in the public consciousness. That's true. Very rarely anyway. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some, but they probably hadn't been caught. Right. And I think this is where it comes up in the story. They go through his, his genealogy and they learn that Ted Bundy was an illegitimate child and, you know, he doesn't know who his father was, that he was raised in a situation where he thought his mom was his sister. Yeah, which probably isn't true. It, that's not true? No, probably not. Um, I think that was a rumor. Um, but he knew that his mother was his mother pretty early on. <laughs> I love that the movie... The movie pulls no punches here. Like, do you think it's just a tame little TV movie? But they, they start down the subplot. Well, Ted, you know, he didn't know who his parents were. He lived a sad life. But the movie has no sympathy for Ted Bundy whatsoever. It just has Keppel saying, well, you know what? A lot of people grew up in hardship. They weren't cracking girls over the head with a crowbar. <laughs> I thought that was good. I thought that was a good line. Yeah, the movie does not go down that path. Right. Exactly. There's no sympathy there. And fair, right? Like, lots of people have difficult childhoods. And his wasn't even particularly difficult. <laughs> yeah. His middle-class life in Tacoma, a rough life. Right. <laughs> they were trying to justify it. Well, some people still do, and that's the thing. A lot, of, a lot of websites out there and people that write about Ted Bundy are kind of sympathetic towards him, which sucks, to be honest. <laughs> you shouldn't be sympathetic to this guy. Be sympathetic to the victims. He was a dick. Exactly. 
So, oh, yeah. So it's all kind of going down here. And now we get uh, Ted's trial. This is his. We eventually get to trial his uh, kidnapping trial for Carol Durant. And this they spend a lot of time, probably more time than I would have spent if I did this movie on this first trial, because I don't think it's as interesting. But this is where it's really just circumstantial evidence. It's her word against his. Right. Basically. Yeah, basically. And the fact that he had these things in his car. That. That seemed awfully strange that he would have all these things in his car when they caught him. Yeah. So, yeah, Ted Bundy loses his first trial. He gets uh, convicted of first-degree felony kidnapping, which is a 1 to 15 years. And that's bad. And people are shocked up in Seattle. Oh, my God, Ted Bundy, a kidnapper? But the detectives are pissed about this because they know he's killed people. And they just want him to get more than 1 to 15 years. They're like, there's no way. this. So they're putting their heads together, putting their heads together. And I think... What happens here is this is where Ted escapes from prison for the first time, right? Not in Utah. So what happens is he gets transferred to Colorado. So so Ted's serving the the time for his uh, kidnapping conviction of Carol Durant at the Utah State Prison. But Mike Fisher up in Colorado decides that he has enough evidence now to extradite Ted to stand trial in Aspen for the murder of Karen Campbell, which was the one that took place at the Wildwood Inn. And um, it's not a super strong case, but he does manage to extradite uh, Ted out of Utah and into Colorado. And so um, he's able to escape from Colorado twice during that trial. Yeah, so Bundy's on uh, trial in Colorado for murder. It just started and he is able to act as his own lawyer. He doesn't like that he lost his first trial. He acts as lawyer in Colorado. When you act as your own lawyer, you get a special privileges. You get access to the law library. They take your chains off. You get books. And Bundy famously takes advantage of that when he's up in the law library one day during a recess. He jumps out the window of the courtroom and just walks away. So. Yep, and walks up into the mountains of Aspen. And this, how, how, how many days was he up in the mountains? It was a couple days. In the movie, they make it look like it's instantaneous, but he's up there for a couple days, right? He was up there for a week. Wow. Yeah, I'm just wandering around lost. <laughs> just Bundy walking around in the Colorado mountains in the winter, which is not where you want to be. Well, it wasn't the winter. It was the summer when it happened. Oh, is this the summer? Okay, that's right. That's why he's not dead. He would Yeah, have died. in the movie, it was in the winter. Okay, that's, that's what's mixing me up. Yeah, so Bundy escapes the first time, and he doesn't get very far, and they eventually catch him for, get, get this. Bad driving. <laughs> so they catch him they put him back in prison and now uh now he's facing all these new charges and and uh, then he escapes again this is the astounding thing that ted escapes a second time yeah from a second jail um so he's moved to garfield county jail which is about an hour away from aspen because garfield county jail is considered more secure uh, but Ted quickly realizes that there is a loose light fixture at the top of his ceiling of his cell. And he realizes that if he starts, you know, scraping away at it, he can get it to move. And he's able to eventually uh, move the entire light fixture out of the ceiling, crawled up into the ceiling. He'd lost about 20 pounds on purpose so he could get through this about one foot square inch hole in the ceiling. And crawls through it, climbs out uh, the other end uh, through the roof, and escapes into the night. Just walks out of the 
of the jail. And this is all historically accurate. This is exactly the way it happened in real life. And it's, it is astounding that Ted Bundy escaped prison once and they somehow let him do it again. And the second time he escapes, the first time they know he escapes immediately and they surround the mountains and they eventually catch him. The second time he climbs out and he walks out into the night and they don't know for like 12, 24 hours or something. And by the time they know, he's already in Chicago. Right. He was able to steal a car and drive to Vail. And from Vail, he took a plane to Chicago back when you could just, no, sorry, you went from Vail to Denver. In Denver, he got a plane back when you didn't need any ID to get on a plane, flew to Chicago. And then uh, by the time they realized he was missing, he was already in a different state. Yeah, and this, like, people, I think, superficially know the Ted Bundy story. They know he started in Seattle, kind of went through Utah, then the Chi Omegas in Florida. I don't know if the average layperson realizes how infuriating it is that he killed these women in Florida that should be alive today still. Like, it only happened because of the jailbreak, because they let Ted Bundy escape twice. Like, it is so infuriating that he was allowed to go to Florida and finish off the job here. Right. And, you know, I have an extra story about that. He, they had, um, other inmates had already reported hearing him working on that uh, light fixture at, at night. He was, they heard scraping noises and they said, I think Ted's trying to escape. And they didn't do anything about it. And he was able to escape. I had heard that there had been rumors of him even getting crawling up in that crawl space earlier and they'd hear him roaming around the roof at night to figure out where to go. Was that accurate as well, that people had actually heard him up there? I hadn't heard that, but um, the neighboring, the boy in the neighboring, they put a 14-year-old in this cell next to Ted, uh, and he's the one who was the one who turned him in, um, and he said he'd heard him, you know, scraping. I don't know if he heard him moving around in the ceiling, though. But yeah, it is so infuriating, if you know the story, that this Chi Omega even happened. Like, it's... Oh my God, if this happened today, the amount of lawsuits that we flying around over this, oh my God. That Okay, so let's get to the end of the movie. Said Ted is going to go to the part of the story that most people know when they think about Ted Bundy. In fact, if you have you ever seen the movie Copycat about the serial killer who copies other serial killers? No, I guess not. Is it worth seeing? I love it. Yeah, I did it. I did, I did an episode on staff picks about copycat. I think it's pretty good. But this guy, he famously uh, imitates other serial killers and his grand finale is Ted Bundy. And so there's the like, oh, well, what's Ted Bundy's M.O.? And in the movie, it's, oh, Ted Bundy killed two women in one night in Chi Omega. I'm like, that's not really Ted Bundy's M.O. That's just him at the end of his shovel. But in the movie, they, they portray that as that's what he's known for. Yeah, that was probably the most sensational trial. The most, the one he's most known for. Okay, so let's get to the end of the movie. So Ted Bundy, Mark Harmon, has escaped from prison. We see him happily walking through the Chicago airport. No one even knows he's gone. And there was a scene earlier in the movie where Ted says, you know, I might get the death penalty if they convict me for murder. And he's talking to Richard Larson, the the reporter. And Ted's like, where do you suppose a man would go where he'd be the most likely to get the electric chair, get the death penalty? And Richard Larson says, either Georgia or Florida. So we're meant to kind of think that Ted went to Florida because he wanted to die in the electric chair, which I maybe disagree with. What are your thoughts on that? I disagree with that. Uh, that's kind of an apocryphal story. Um, there's no evidence that that really happened. Um, there's rumor that that was 
what happened. Uh, but Ted himself said he picked Florida because he was tired of being cold and he wanted to go someplace warm. And so he picked, grabbed a map and looked at Florida and looked at college campuses in Florida and picked one out. And that's just where he happened to end up. I don't think he had a death wish. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think he had any intention of being caught and killed. He wanted to keep doing what he was doing, and he wanted to go somewhere warm where girls didn't wear a lot of clothes. That's my guess. <laughs> <laughs> to be blunt, that's how he would have yeah, thought. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ted Bundy ends up in Tallahassee, Florida, and they don't mention it in the movie, but he, what he has done in real life is he's stolen some IDs. He has a new identity. Chris Hagen, I believe, is the name. And uh, he is just a kid in a candy store walking around a college campus and meanwhile everyone else in the country is going nuts so in, where is ted bundy he's like they're trying to get him on the 10 most wanted list they're you know trying to warn people they're like he's gonna strike he's gonna do it again he's got a ticking time bomb and i think he's only in florida for like a week right before he snaps right right he's in florida for a week and um that's when he breaks into the Omega sorority house all right, I will give you the honor as my guest. You get to describe the creepiest scene in the movie, the Chi Omega sorority house. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's actually pretty accurate. Again, um, he was reported by multiple witnesses as being in this nightclub that was next door to the sorority. And uh, he was actually kind of rejected by women in that nightclub that he was trying to hit on. And... Maybe that pissed him off, and it happened to be right next door to the Chi Omega sorority house. And he gets in, um, supposedly through a lock that's either broken or left unlocked in the back of the sorority house, walks up to the second floor where all the girls are sleeping. Um, and he picked up this piece of firewood that is just outside the, the door. And he decides that's going to be his weapon, and he comes into the first room he sees, which is Margaret Bowman. She's asleep and he attacks her and bashes her skull in and strangles her. And then he covers her up with blanket and walks outside and picks another room and attacks that girl. Her name was Lisa Levy and strangles her, smashes her head. It skips the part where he sexually assaulted her with her own hairspray bottle in the movie, but that also happened, sadly. And then he's not done. Um, he leaves that room, goes into a third room, and starts beating two girls that were in there, um, Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner. Um, but one of the sorority sisters just happened to be getting back from a late-night date, and he sees her headlights pulling into the room, and that scares, scares him off from killing these two girls so they're badly injured but they're not dead and he escapes the house but the girls need a near he was coming back from the date she sees him very briefly walking out the front door and she's like oh that's strange there's a man in here she goes upstairs um to say well you should call the police there was a there's a man maybe there's a burglar and then one of the karen chandler who had been attacked but she was still alive she comes out of her room and she's just covered in blood and they realize that something really horrible has happened. And the two girls are dead and two more have been terribly injured. Yeah, this is the 
standout scene in the movie. And again, this is the one on the commercials when they'd advertise it. The, the, the deliberate stranger this week on Saturday night. And they'd always show this scene, like him walking down the hall with the, the piece of wood. This is a legitimately creepy scene, even for a TV movie. And again, you don't see a whole lot of blood. You see blood splattering on the wall when he's hitting the women. But at the time when this movie came out, I know this was considered one of the most controversial scenes ever in a TV movie because they normally didn't get this violent on TV and movies like this. But yeah, this is a, uh, this one will stick with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably definitely the most graphic. It's definitely the most graphic of any of them because they didn't show anything for any of them. This is the only one that actually shows anything that definitely indicates murder. And I've read a lot of reviews that talk about, you know, how Mark Harmon, you know, very physical athlete, athletic guy, but man, you can see it when he goes nuts, when he goes nuts and his eyes turn black and he turns into Ted Bundy mode, you really see the physicality and he's scary when he's beating these women. Like he's, this is why when people say he does such a good job in this movie, like I'm still creeped out when I see Mark Harmon, to be honest, in any other movie. Yeah. He's able to really channel Ted Bundy there, which is kind of a dubious honor. So, yeah, so everything in this scene is very accurate. This is one of the uh, crimes he eventually was convicted of, the double murder. Could have been four murders, but he only ended up killing two because he got scared off. But, yeah, this is a a rough one. And this is, in the movie, they show the minute the Chi Omega sorority murders make the news, all the reporter, all the investigators in other states are like, Florida, that's Ted Bundy. So they all come rushing down to Florida. And now we get... The scene, which I'm really glad they don't show much in the movie because this is the bad one. I mean, not that they all aren't bad. This is where he kills a 12-year-old girl. This is uh, Ted Bundy has lost all control by this point. He's just killing anything he sees, any girl he sees. And Kimberly Leach is his last victim. And luckily, they really skip over this one in the movie. You hardly even see it. That's true, but I read in one of the articles um, that they actually had a scene where he's leading her to the van, and it was cut, ultimately. Probably for good reason, that's all I'm saying. Yes, yeah, because it's very sad. Yeah, I don't want to get too graphic into this one, but what was happening is Ted Bundy has just lost all control. He can't really sweet talk girls to his car anymore as as uh tiffany said at chi omega girls were turning him down because he was like disheveled he was like he gave off a weird vibe they didn't like him they said he looked like an ex-con <laughs> wow that's good you look like someone who escaped from prison in colorado perhaps exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah he would kind of lost his skills to lure women in the car so now he's just straight up attacking people and he what happens is he goes to uh was it lake city or park city i forget the name lake lake city florida Lake City, and he sees a 12-year-old girl in the parking lot named Leslie Parmenter, if I recall. He tries to lure her into his car, saying he's a police officer or a fireman or something. Uh, her brother comes driving up and says, get away from my sister, you perv. And so Bundy drives away and drives to a nearby middle school and sees this girl, Kimberly Leach, and he somehow uh, talks her into his van. And again, that's this is the one he's going to the death penalty for. Yep. Ultimately, this is the one he was executed for, rightly. It's terrible. It's, uh, yes. Unfortunately, Tiffany and I know more, way more about this, and we don't want to talk about it. But yeah, this is the worst one. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, we just finished the movie with Ted Bundy just out of control, killing left and right. He kills a 12-year-old, and now he's finally caught for the final time in the movie for, once again, bad driving. (laughs) 
<laughs> so talk about this scene. I know this one's pretty accurate, if I recall. This is accurate. Um, he was actually headed to Texas, he told people later. Um, but he was on his way out of Florida. He was in Pensacola. And he had stolen a car, another VW, VW Bug. That's his favorite car. And um, the owner had already reported it stolen. And so when a beat cop sees him driving erratically, he calls in the license plate and realizes it's a stolen car. And so he thinks he's about to arrest someone for stealing a car. So he pulls Ted over and starts putting handcuffs on him. And Ted suddenly lashes out and fights back, and he's able to escape. Um, the police officer fires a shot, and Ted crumples to the ground, pretending that he'd been shot. In the movie, he's trying to climb over a fence, but that didn't really happen. But um, And so he's scrapping with this police officer. Eventually, the officer is able to subdue him, and Ted realizes he's caught for the last time. And he says, I wish you'd killed me. He, he realizes the game is the jig is up and it's done. Now, one question I've always had, you probably know this better than I do. Does Ted Bundy actually get shot here when the cop shoots, shoots his gun at him? No, he doesn't. The cop, he was, he was faking it. Okay. So yeah, so the cop basically beats the crap out of Bundy and Bundy gets pulled into uh, a police station in Florida. And this part of the movie, this is the very end of the movie. We're literally like a minute and a half left in the movie. I don't think this is the way it went down, and you may be able to correct me, where Bundy gets in there and the Florida cops all want to talk to him, and Bundy immediately starts confessing, which that's not quite how it happened, right? No, and he was careful about, he said some very, I think, incriminating things, but he was careful not to have anything that could be traced to any of the crimes. So he was speaking hypotheticals, and I think he came very close to confessing because he was just, I think he was just very disappointed in himself for getting caught again. Um, he really wanted to make a deal so that if he confessed, he'd be sent back to Washington where he'd, be, he'd spend the rest of his days in a mental hospital with his hope. Florida had no intention of doing that. Uh, but yeah, he did have several late night conversations with several police officers in Florida um, where he said a lot of incriminating things that weren't admissible in court. And he knew that they wouldn't be. So he was probably playing with them a little bit just, to see him get riled up and think that they could get close to making Ted Bundy confess. Yeah, I've heard some people say that, like, he didn't want to be known as some small-town-time criminal. He's like, he wanted them to know that they had a big shot in prison, but he couldn't quite say why. So he's edging right up to the truth, like, yeah, and you guys really, you don't, you have no idea who you just arrested tonight. So he's trying to make them know he's a big shot. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, for sure. <laughs> so... So they talk to him and uh, he says, uh, you know, that I've had this problem. It's been in a couple states. And they're like, how many states are we talking about? And he says six. Now, I know there's a point of contention here. Obviously, we're never going to know for sure. The official record, I believe, would be the states where he has committed murder would be Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, Florida, and then Idaho as the sixth. Are there any others that are suspected more than those six states? California. He admitted to killing one person in California. They've never been able to figure out who. Okay. I'm just I'm going through the, the timeline in my head trying to figure out where and when, which will not translate to a podcast whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And then, but then there's, there's one, uh, 
a misquote here. And this, this quote drives me crazy because I know this is a misquote in the movie. Now, in real life, Ted Bundy says, like, there's something like 30, 34 murders or something like that. I forget the number. And Ted Bundy says, add one digit to that and you'll have it or something like that. But in the movie, <laughs> Ted Bundy says, oh, the number of cases could be uh, three figures, which is not what he said at all. He said one digit. But I know that's been misquoted over the years. Right. And there's some contention over whether he even said that. Um, add, a, add a digit to it and you'll have it. That was kind of an apocryphal thing. Uh, but he definitely didn't say three figures, for sure. I mean, is there any chance Ted Bundy killed 100-something women in a year and a half? I cannot believe that's no. possible. No way. No. He's not, yeah, he's not OJ. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly, sorry. I mean, yeah, it's just Ted Bundy. Yeah, just Ted Bundy, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but here's the other thing I love about this movie. So the cops are interrogating Ted Bundy, and all the investigators, Keppel, Thompson, and Fisher, show up at the police station. They're like, let us in, let us talk to Bundy. And they're like, no, the police, the Florida cops. Like, how did they get there so fast? Are we meant to believe that they teamed up and all got on the same flight and flew six hours across the country in the middle of some interrogation? So I just laugh when I watch that scene. Right, that's not accurate. <laughs> yeah. Eventually they did come there, but not immediately. Yeah, so uh, really that's the end of the movie. Ted Bundy is arrested in Florida. He's going to get the death penalty for first Kimberly Leach, the little 12-year-old, and then for Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman eventually. Um, all the people in the other states are going to go home empty-handed. They never. Ted Bundy never faced charges in Washington for anything. He never was convicted of anything in Colorado. It's just the Utah kidnapping, if I recall, right? Right. That's all they could hold him on. They tried to, Utah tried to extradite him back. <laughs> that obviously didn't fly. And Colorado thinks they had a case with uh, Karen Campbell, the hair. She had one of her hairs was left around his, uh, his steering column or the, the stick shift, if I recall. Washington, I don't know if he ever would have faced charges, but they always claim they had enough that they would have eventually. But again, at the end of the day, yeah, they didn't have enough. Absolutely not. No, there was no physical evidence in Washington at all. OK, but at, yeah, at the end of the movie, he uh, gets convicted of murder, gets the death penalty in Florida, goes to the end, proclaiming his innocence, sentenced to the electric chair. And the movie ends with, I think, him calling Liz one last time. And she's like, goodbye, Ted, and just hangs up on him. And that's kind of it. Right. That didn't happen, though. That part's not accurate. <laughs> but again, this movie ends in 1986, which at the time Ted Bundy was on death row, endlessly appealing everything. I don't know if people <laughs> you have to think about these in realistic real world timelines that <laughs> he was convicted in 1979. He died in 1989. So there was 10 years of him just appealing shit. Right. 86 was the first year he was actually getting death warrants, too. So, yeah, so this movie was made when he was still alive and had not confessed to most of his crimes yet. So it's kind of interesting when you watch a movie that the end doesn't quite hasn't quite happened yet. But, yeah, so talk about his death, his uh, execution day. That was 89, right? Right. January 24th, 1989. Um, so his luck finally runs out. He beat three death warrants before and they signed another one. And um, they're not able to get the appeals. There's too many of the appeals are denied. And he realizes the writing is on the wall. And he's trying to come up with a way to buy himself some more time. And he decides to start confessing to certain murders in certain jurisdictions in the hopes that 
some of those investigators will ask their attorney generals to beg the Florida governor to give Ted Bundy more time because he needs time to confess. Um, Florida governor has no interest in doing that. And actually neither do the investigators, but they're willing to listen. Um, and Ted Bundy is really hoping that he'll give them something that will be worthwhile that will buy him some more time. So he decides to tell them about certain murders. Um, he tells them about George, Ho George Ann Hawkins in Washington. He picks uh, Deborah Kent and Nancy Wilcox in Utah. Um, and Julie Cunningham in Colorado. And then another 12-year-old girl in Idaho, which they didn't even know about, um, which is interesting. I think he was just trying to get as many investigators in there as he could in hopes that one of them would ask for more time for him. Um, and he gives directions on how to get to their remains, especially in the Utah and Colorado cases. He gives pretty specific directions, and uh, he's hoping that someone will go down there and dig these up and so he can be proven as being truthful, truthful so he'll get some more time. Uh, it's the middle of winter in Utah. No one's going looking because everything's covered in snow. But that was his hope. And uh, so he's confessing right until the morning of his execution. And um, he gives out two more names that morning. Whether it was because he wanted more time or whether he was actually trying to cleanse his soul, you know, he went through his Christian conversion um, and did the famous interview about the how pornography Explain that to people. Explain that to people. People might not know that, that he, he blamed pornography for why he killed people. Well, yeah, he said that pornography was uh, the shaping factor. Um, he said not just with him, but with all murderers. He's like, they all have that in common. Is they all looked at pornography, and that's what shaped them into having these sadistic sexual fantasies. And Dobson was on a campaign against pornography at the time. And he thought Ted Bundy would be a really great spokesman for the anti-porn brigade. I just, I'm just, I'm just enjoying that from a PR point of view. You know who would be a good spokesperson for my for my cause? Ted Bundy. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, they they heavily marketed it, and that was the only interview that he gave. Um, and Dobson sold those um, VHS tapes for twenty five dollars each of the Ted Bundy's last interview. And you know, he's doing, he's crying in the interview and um, talking about how she did, doesn't want to die uh, and that pornography is, is what drove him to kill and that if we don't stamp out pornography, it's going to create a whole nother generation of, of serial killers. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Ted. Didn't exactly, didn't exactly happen like that, but. Yeah. Ted's not exactly Nostradamus. <laughs> right. But yeah, so uh, so yeah, so that is the Ted Bundy story. Although there's two things I want to ask you before we kind of sign off here. And again, I know we've really talked more about Ted Bundy, the case more than the movie, but the movie, I just love to love everything about it. But OK, so they talk about sociopathy in the movie a lot about how sociopaths are unable to feel empathy. They cannot feel compassion. They can only understand suffering, but like their own suffering, they don't really get that other people suffer. Do you think they accurately describe Ted Bundy when they talk about him like that in this movie? That's controversial. Um, I'd say generally that's probably true. 
Um, I think he felt selective empathy when he wanted to feel sorry for someone he could, um, but he was able to separate himself from the victims. He was able to compartmentalize all of that um, and shove it all down so that that would only come up at certain times. The rest of the time he wanted to be seen as normal. That was very important to him to be seen as normal. Um, but I think, yeah, most people would describe him as a psychopath. To be able to do something like that, you'd have to be, you'd have to be psychopath, probably. He wasn't legally insane. Well, that's the thing. If he's trying to hide his crimes and trying to get away with it, he's not insane. He knows exactly what he's doing. Right. He just has a personality disorder. Yeah. The other thing is, I have heard this, and I think I've heard you dispute this, but I just want to get this on the record, that they have said that Ted had a a wiring in his brain that was like abnormal where the pleasure center and the violent center were like the same thing. So like the only way he could like achieve an orgasm and stuff was through violence. Like, has that been proven or is that true? That's not true at all. Uh, his brain was never analyzed for one thing. Um, there would be no way to know that, but also he had normal relations with lots of women um, in Utah and in Washington. He just enjoyed this way of getting off more than the normal way, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Cause I'd, I'd heard that. I, I don't know the research like you do. I've just heard all these stories and we got to end with the last one. So <laughs> everyone and their mother loves to talk about if Ted started his killing career by killing his neighbor, Anne Marie Burr in Tacoma when she was whatever, eight or whatever. And he was like 14 I know you have strong feelings about that. I do as well. And I think they're the same feeling. Do you think Ted Bundy started his career by killing little Anne-Marie Burr? I don't. I think it's very unlikely. Do you want me to get into why? Yeah, if you could summarize it for people, because people might not know the story behind this. Sure. So Anne-Marie Burr is 1961, Tacoma, Washington. Anne-Marie Burr goes to bed. She's living in her family home, sharing a room with her little sister. And then um, she disappears in the middle of the night. Her mother wakes up, finds the front door open. The windows to the living room is cracked. Anne-Marie is not in her bed. She's gone. Um, it was storming that night. And somehow she just walked out of the house or was taken. And she was never found. There was massive searches for her. She was never located. No ransom note. Nothing. She just disappeared. And so much later, when people realized Ted Bundy was from Tacoma, they think, well, there was a serial killer there. He must have been responsible. Um, he was 14 at the time. He was living in a different part of the town, I think about three miles away. He was living with his parents. Um, he had no car. And he had no relations to Anne-Marie Burr. There's a few myths out there that he knew her, or he was their paper boy, or his uncle taught her piano, and none of that is true. Um, and so he had no reason to know who Anne-Marie Burr was, but just because of the coincidence of location, people blame 14-year-old Ted Bundy of stealing an eight-year-old out of her bed in the middle of the night. Personally, I think it was someone that she knew and trusted that she was willing to go with. Yeah, and I, I agree with you, but people will say, well, she knew Ted Bundy and trusted him, but that's not true at all, right? That's not true. Well, there's no evidence for that at all. There's no reason they would have known each other. 
I just want people to know if you're listening to this episode, Tiffany knows more about this than anybody because she's researched all the source materials. Like she has actually sent away for files. She's read the actual affidavits, the interviews. So she knows way more about this than pretty much anybody who writes or talks about Ted Bundy. So <laughs> this is not really speculation for the most part. I'm, I'm just pointing that out. Right. I've, I've, I've done my research, put it that way. I, some have called me a Ted Bundy expert, which is kind of a dubious honor, but I suppose I am at this point. Enthusiast. How about enthusiast? Is that better? <laughs> That's even more dubious. <laughs> okay. So yeah, just to wrap up a little bit that there's a lot of Ted Bundy websites and books and stories out there. I just want to uh, hype Tiffany's uh, page. I'll let you hype it a little bit. I'll give you a little plug for what you do, but her stuff is so well done and it's so empathetic towards the victims and it's so well researched. And I, I just have to point that out because so many people when they write and talk about Ted Bundy are like, this guy's amazing. He was so cool. He did this. And like, that is so the opposite of how the story should be written about. Like I literally saw someone the other day, someone, there was a picture of Ted Bundy and, and some woman wrote, Oh, he's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, he was amazing the way he abducted some guy's daughter and then beat her over the head and then had sex with her corpse. Yeah, what an amazing guy he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, but you still to this day get these Bundy groupies, which is the weirdest thing. Yeah, I think part of that was the Mark Harmon effect, as we talked about. Um, and, you know, objectively, he was a good-looking man. Can't, you can't argue with that. <laughs> he was not a good person, but he, you know, he was objectively good looking, I suppose. If you look past the other stuff, he was a fine looking man. <laughs> so yeah, before we sign off, I want to let you plug your site. Cause I, I really think if people want to learn more about the Ted Bundy story, yours is the website to go to. That's the one I go to and I consider myself an expert. So tell people how they can find your oh, stuff. Yeah, you. Tell people how they can find your stuff. Sure. So I run um, a blog that's called uh, killer in the archives. Um, because I emphasize archival resources for what the stories that I tell. Um, and so it's killerintheArchives.blog. Uh, I have a Patreon where I share a lot of my research, like the original materials that I found. Um, and it helps me pay for this stuff because it's not free. I've spent a lot of money. I actually just came back from Florida. I flew down there to do research in the Florida State Archives. And um, so, I'm, you know, I'm pretty serious about it, and it helps me out uh, people join the Patreon. Uh, I run social media, Killer in the Archives. Um, probably that's how I met you is through my Facebook page, um, which is kind of a short-form blog. Um, do I do anything else? <laughs> that seems enough. <laughs> yeah, that seems enough. Yeah. Yeah, go check out her site. And again, this movie, The Deliberate Stranger, again, there's a lot of sensationalist stuff about Ted Bundy out there. But this is just a straightforward, simple, very accurate retelling of how it went down for the people, the victims, the loved ones, the investigators. And I, I could not say more about it, how much I love it. And I really want to thank you, Tiffany, for coming on and talking about it. And I'm very excited that I introduced you to this movie. Oh, great. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good movie and I thought it was pretty well done. So thank you for sharing that bootleg DVD with me. <laughs> hey, we don't use that word. We don't use that word on the podcast. It's a it's a quote unquote VHS tape I taped back in 85 and let you borrow. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was totally wrong. Uh, but thank you. And I, I appreciate you having me.
All right, and once again, thank you for listening. My name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff, Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting that I can lightly stalk. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Actually, I was looking for a kind soul, preferably a pretty one. Help me unload my sailboat from my car. Flattery and a broken arm will get you just about... Anywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, it's not broken, really. It's just sprained. Hi, my name's Ted, by the way. I'm Lisa.